Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now we are continuing our look into the history of G.I. Joe with the 40th anniversary just in the, the rear window. We've spoken to Larry Hammer uh, on the comics side. We've spoken to Kurt Bazigian and Ron Rude out on the toy side. And uh, today we're going to be talking to another very special guest who was there at the genesis of the comics. And I won't be doing it alone. I will be joined by my co-host, Tim Finn. So let's introduce him now. Hi, Mark. And hello, Hi, listeners. Uh, Mark, you just said that the uh, anniversary is in the rearview mirror. But if G.I. Joe launches in March of 82 and an anniversary is one year, that's 12 months. So at time of recording... We've got a month and a half left of this anniversary. Let's introduce our guest. So today we will be talking to Jim Shooter. He's an American comics creator, editor, and publisher. He made his start writing Legion of Superheroes when he was only 14 years old. He served as the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics from 1978 to 1987. And during that time, he launched... G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero in 1982. He gave Larry Hammer the writing gig and he was uh, had the credits in the books as editor-in-chief up to issue 64. Um, now, he's had a long and illustrious career. Uh, after leaving Marvel, he founded several comic companies, including Valiant Comics, Defiant Comics and Broadway Comics, launching many of the comics and characters that everyone knows and loves. But without further ado, let's add him in. Here's Jim. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Good. What a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so nice much. Nice to be here. Thanks. Good to have you uh, join us. My pleasure. I'm going to jump in with a question that set in the late 70s and early 80s uh, that, that tease up G.I. Joe. Can you describe the, the world and the feeling of licensed comics at Marvel as G.I. Joe arrives because you have Star Wars, uh, Battlestar Galactica, ROM, Godzilla has just ended. Uh, what is what is the world? What is the outlook at Marvel? Well, I mean, uh, Marvel would have been dead without Star Wars. Um, that Roy Thomas, I guess he was out in California at that point. Somehow he was privy to some of what was going on with Star Wars. And he desperately wanted us to license it. I didn't have any authority then. I was just the editor. I wasn't the editor-in-chief yet. It was in 1977. And, and nobody wanted it. I, I didn't have a vote. Nobody asked me. But, but nobody wanted it. And they didn't even really know what it was. But uh, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, they were saying, oh, science fiction doesn't sell. And my answer to that was, show me a good one. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, because, I mean, uh, what do you mean? I, I, so, so anyway, we, there was some debate, and I, I all I wanted to do was ha have a look at it, you know. Uh, but Roy was the only one who really seen much of it, and uh, but he still had a lot of clout. Even he, he was just a contract writer at that point time, writer editor. But um, he held his breath till he turned blue, and man, we ended up doing it, and it it saved the company. It sold so much. 
that everything else is losing money. I mean, without Star Wars, we were losing uh, more than a million dollars a year. Uh, with Star Wars, it it would it kept us alive all by itself, and it gave me a year to turn it around. And you know, I got great people, and we we did. So to me, Star Wars is the most important thing that ever happened to Marvel. As far as the other things, the people upstairs of me, the, um, this is when I was editor in chief and vice president. And so there was all these other vice presidents, and there were six of them, and they were the president of the company. None of them had ever opened a comic book, and really didn't know what what made comic books go. So if something would work like Star Wars. Then they want to do every movie. Let's just do movies. You know, <laughs> if something would work like a toy, like G.I. Joe, then all they want to do is toys. The next thing you know, I'm doing Chris Star and, you know, uh, uh, Star Years. And... See, I had a lot of power and I, you should see all the list of stuff I successfully fended off. And I reported to the president. Nobody could overrule me but him. But other people had his ear, too. And if they convinced him that we should do uh starriers we're doing starriers you know uh so that was that was the the climate was we had uh, done a couple things that were tremendously successful uh i kind of got roped into doing something that i really didn't want we did the best we could and some of them came out but really well matter of fact one that i licensed uh uh all on my own uh was uh, uh micronauts and that far outlasted the toy and also wrong uh, uh, it was uh, some of the best stuff Bill Mantlo ever did. We had some good art on it. Um, it was fun, and the toy was gone in an instant. But the but the but the book went on for I don't know years, I guess. Anyway, so so that was the climate. It was like uh, uh, we had some things that were really successful. We did the best we could at everything. We had some things we'd rather not, but but we did the best anyway. And um, and they, of course. I kept telling him, it can't just be a toy. It has to be a super toy. It can't just be a movie. It has to be a giant mega hit, mm. you know, but anyway. And and what was the sort of the creator perception of some of these these licensed properties? I've heard sort of Larry Hammer describe, I guess, there, there being a little bit of a taint to, to working on, on the licensed books. A few guys, a few guys. I mean, uh, Doug Minch did some good stuff on, on, there were a lot of good guys who just, that were fine with that. Herb Trempe, you know, I mean, uh, uh, but uh, there were a few people like, uh, like Denny O'Neill, Denny, you know, Hall of Fame, you know, but, but for some reason he thought it was more dignified to write Batman or Daredevil than it was to write, you know, uh, uh, Transformers. I don't know why that is, but whatever. Some guys didn't like it. And, and, uh, also, uh, uh, for G.I. Joe, I mean, Larry often talked about uh, how it was difficult to get people to work on it. Why? Because anybody at Marvel could sit down and write a Daredevil story. Everybody knew Daredevil, right? But with G.I. Joe, you had to do some research because Larry wasn't going to let you get away with using phony <laughs> weapons or, or, you know, uh, not getting the, the lingo right. So, uh, so it was a little harder work. But there were a lot of good guys, and they enjoyed it. And uh, uh, same with Anami. I think you had um, Doug Murray, maybe. But <laughs> the guys, that they, they really liked that. Um, Mike Zek, I love to do that stuff. Uh, a lot of great, great guys were, were into it. And so it was, you know, like I said, we, we, wasn't, we didn't struggle that hard. I mean, there's a few people who didn't want to, but the rest of us did. Was some of this financial, if a book was licensed, 
or maybe I'm thinking too much sort of in the last five or 10 years, if a book was licensed, was its budget at Marvel lower because Marvel had paid some of its budget to be able to make the book in the first place? Would a writer and artist make less money? No. I, I wrote the budget for my my uh, area. All I, I was in charge of all the publishing stuff. There was a circulation department and and the subscription lady, you know, and, and there were there was uh, things that I didn't directly control, but all of the creative and editorial and 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 almost every publishing decision that was me. And the fact is, I wrote the budget every year. OK, and no individual comic book had a budget. It, I calculated how many pages we were going to do that year and I. I uh, d decided how much money that would cost. I never had a budget uh, rejected or even discussed, except one, which was my first one, because the guy before me, uh, instead of like actually doing the research and writing a good budget, they would they would uh, uh, just take uh, last year's budget and add ten percent. And so, when I analyzed it and I found out what our average page cost was, which is much more than than the previous budget said it was. I wrote it correctly, and the president asked me, "So, what? Well, this is this is insane! You're, you're you know, like just a giant increase." I said, "No, it isn't. That's what we really pay." I said, "The people before weren't doing a job." <laughs> so he 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 saw that, and then he he actually uh, uh, said, this. "He said, all right, well, you know, fix it." <laughs> so so I did, <laughs> and um, so no individual book had a budget. We didn't, you know, I could do anything I wanted. Besides, it when I came in there. Everything was losing money, and 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 uh, except Star Wars, and and then when I got all these great people, I got Archie Goodwin's best of all time. I got Larry Hama's that's like winning the lottery. I got Louise Simonson that's better than Christmas. I mean, it, she, I had all these great people: Bob Budiansky, Jim Salakra, Carl Potts, eventually Hal Milgram. I, I, all these wonderful, talented people, and we we they were you know people who didn't know me maybe or, or were afraid of me for some reason anybody come and work for archie anybody come and work for louise they say well louise is there how bad could it be you know and so those editors helped attract talent i got on the uh, the um, task of uh making it better for cartoons because i i thought uh, we've been publishing some pretty sad stuff and you know we need better people we need you know to People who care about it, no, you know, no hacks. You know, I, I, my deal with the president of the company was that if I save money or if I uh, beat my projections, uh, I can use that money and, and put it, plow it back in. He didn't think either of those things were possible. So he said, "I don't care what you do." Well, I don't care what you do is a pretty free hand. So, uh, so I, I managed to save money by getting the company on time. That saved hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I, I found all kinds of other ways to save money and. I beat my projections every year, every time. And so all of a sudden there's money. And I started, uh, I doubled the rates. I doubled them again. We started introducing all these programs, benefits, healthcare. Uh, uh, I paid all expenses. Uh, I said, if, if you're, you're sending something to Marvel, we'll pay the shipping. If you're calling Marvel, in those days you paid per call. I said, I'll pay the phone bill. If you if you, if I ask you to come to Marvel, I'll pay your train fare. If you're coming from far away, we'll pay all your travel expenses and we'll feed you while you're here and put you in a nice hotel. 
And so things got better and we got better guys and, and, and people were making money and it, it was, it was really going good. So there was no budgetary concern about individual comics. That's why like a, a, a comic that didn't sell as well as X-Men, like Dazzler, like I, I had Sienkiewicz covers on it. That, that costs a bunch of money. <laughs> uh, but, but he loved it. The covers looked great. You know, it was, and it was selling out selling Superman by 80,000 copies. So it wasn't doing that bad. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I had total freehand, total freehand. And, and you sort of led the way with, with royalties, I, I believe. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, on the day I took the job, I had, a, I, uh, I would, I, the president agreed that we could start paying royalties. Once again, I don't think he thought that was going to happen because not everything was kind of his his. He told me when he hired me, he says, you're, you're here to preside over the death of Marvel Comics. He says, I'm getting us out of this loser business. He said, I'm going to get us into animation and children's books. Try not to lose too much money while I get that done. And I said, you're wrong. I said, I said, that's this is that can be big. and We're going to make it big. It's going to take a while, you know, but we can start. And um, he said, oh, baloney, didn't say it that politely. But uh, um, I said, I said, no, I said that this, this, we can turn this around and, and we're going to. And uh, so uh, when we did turn it around, then, uh, you know, I, I the, boy, the sky was a limit. I could, I could, uh, it's making so much profit for Marvel, which is good for everybody. The fans were liking the books. They're enjoying it. The artists were happy. They're getting paid better. You know, they've got benefits and rights. Rights. I, every, from when I started, um, I started a plan for uh, uh, anytime you create a character, you own 20% of its adjusted gross forever. And mm. um, and so that came in handy for, like, say, Bill Mantlo, Rocket Raccoon. You know, anyway, just I made I made things better. And I, I it was no... Uh, decisions about you know well how much did this issue cost and I, I didn't care is it perhaps the opposite to my previous question uh, a, i mean i think nowadays licensed books do have a lower budget within a publisher's line because they've paid the license yeah uh, i mean a it, lot of publishers making stupid mistakes all over the place because you know that, that's just that's just dumb and, is it uh, is it the is it the opposite though where uh at marvel a licensed book like Transformers or G.I. Joe, because it was tied to something that had this bigger life outside of comics, it was going to sell better and would pay better royalties to the creatives. Well, the royalties were what they were. I mean, however well your book sold, you got royalties. When the royalty plan started, DC did theirs. They announced theirs about the same time. And um, we had the same threshold, 100,000 copies. After 100,000 copies, you get a percentage of the cover price for everyone after that we had a sliding scale our sliding scale uh went up all the way to 10 percent. dc was four percent for ever, that but that's all and uh uh so uh, uh you know uh, the, the thing is like we're happy to pay those royalties because if you're if you're, if you're the x-men selling a million copies you're just happy to give those checks to chris because he, he he deserved them he earned them you know and uh was, uh, we i See, I think that you got to put all that stuff aside and worry about making it good, make care about it, make it mean something and to make people thrilled to put that when they put that book down after reading it, that they think that's the best 65 cents they ever spent. Right. And 
to me, I always tell the guys, I said, you know, the best, best next issue ad is to make this one great. So, you know, I had the best people. That, I mean, I was talking to the choir here, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I, it was sometimes I had to educate the new guys a little bit, but, um, but some of them turned out to be really terrific, by the way. Uh, and the senti, I mean, genius, you know, but, uh, I, I think I had the priorities in the right order. I think that, uh, I mean, you look at Disney when, when Walt was running it, it was wonderfully creative. And now to me, all the Pixar movies seem to be the same and it's a marketing company. You know, I know, I, I think you, there, some people, if you're if, to make more money, will try to bring the cost down. Uh, the guy, one of the guys that ran the place before me, he, he was doing stuff like, uh, rather than give Kirby a raise, he said, he said, why don't you do every issue, just draw one that has, it's a big head. It'll go faster. It'll be like, you're making more money. That's a plan. Uh, one was that he had artists turn the board sideways and draw a panoramic scene in each book. And he paid them for one page, but he printed it as two. And, you know, I said, you're just driving people away. This, this is just dumb. Uh, so we, uh, we tried, I also, they always ask people to do things for free. We need a little symbol for the corner, you know, can you knock one out, John Buscema? And you know, your reward for that was getting your next job, I guess. I said, I came in, I said, no, nobody works for free on anything. If you're working, we pay. And we did. And I tried to make it fair. I tried to, you know, why? Cause I was on the other side of that desk so long. I knew what the problems were. And uh, I was trying to make it right and and made my, you know, share of mistakes, a lot of them, you know, I mean, but uh, they're all they're never in self-interest, you know, always try to be fair, try to make it better for everybody. And uh, and for, I'd say for the most part, I succeeded. I think, uh, you know, I made a couple of bad calls in there, but that was, you know, just, you know, I wish I was smarter. What can I say? So so bringing bringing it back to to sort of gi joe what what was your what was your first kind of whiffs of uh of gi joe in the in the air <laughs> well what happened was the president of marvel comics his name was jim golden he was at some charity function and um uh, erwin hassenfeld was also there and they they met each other actually in the men's room <laughs> washing their hands or something i don't know but uh they they started talking and Hassenfeld was, they were telling each other about what they did. Hassenfeld was telling him all about the Hasbro, the toy biz. And uh, Galton didn't really know a lot about comics, but um, uh, he knew we made stories. <laughs> so so he, he uh, Hassenfeld said uh, that they were trying to revive some of the old brands. And one of them was G.I. Joe, but they didn't know what they were going to do yet. And Galton said, well, and this is him quoting himself to me. He said, you should let us do that. We've got nothing but geniuses, all right? And so a meeting was arranged at their lawyer's office down uh, downtown, way downtown in Manhattan someplace. And uh, the president, Galton, and I went to this meeting. There were several Hasbro executives, not, not Hassenfeld himself, but there's several ha Hasbro executives. And um, they had a one-slide slideshow. It was a picture of a soldier, a photo, and the logo. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. And that's all they had. <laughs> I said, well, the logo is nice. 
anyway, so they, <laughs> we're, we're talking about it. And, and, and uh, they didn't even know what size figures they were going to make. They, 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 they thought, well, the, the big dolls are not a good idea anymore, we think. But we don't know what to do. I said, you got to make them a Star Wars size. I said, because, you know, that's what, a three and three quarter, I think. Yeah. And I and they said, well, why do you think that? And I said, well, it's, it's the most popular one. Number two, I was a little boy once. And if your figures are the same size as the Star Wars figures, little boys will have them fighting, you know, because <laughs> that's what boys do. And and they said, OK, all right, we're talked into it, you know, three and three quarters. And they just, we're going to articulate them and everything's fine. And then uh, uh, one guy says, says well, we want to have a, a whole line of toys. He said, what are we going to do? Have G.I. Joe, G.I. Fred, G.I. Steve? He actually said that. And I said, no, this is me. I said, G.I. Joe will be the name of the unit. And you can't do war, so it has to be anti-terrorist. You can do anti-terrorism. I said, it's top secret unit. Okay, and, they, and it's, it's, it's all the best soldiers and the best sailors and the best airmen and the best Marines. And super secret. But when there's a terrorist crisis, you call in G.I. Joe, right? They like that, and they like the little slogan. And uh, they, they, we talked about some other stuff too. But, but they, they uh, then uh, they said, well, look, we want to do animation and comics, Marvel, and of course we'll do the toys and everything. And actually, the first year, Marvel represented them at licensing, and our licensing people were sufficiently inept that they couldn't license anything. So they took that away from us the second year. But uh, I, they, they, their question was, well, can you get us a story, an outline uh, soon? I said, I have, you'll have it in a couple of days. I went back to the office and I, I, I walked into Larry, straight to Larry Hama's office. And uh, I, uh, I, 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 I said, this is, this is what I've got going. What do you think? And he had been working on an anti-terrorist unit, uh, which was called Fury Force. It was going to be like a revival of the Howling Commandos. It was going to be like either their, I guess, their children who had you know, gotten together and, and had formed this anti-terrorist unit uh, with, under the army. You know, it was all army and it was it was but it was going to be anti-terrorist. I knew about that. I mean, and, and so he said, he said, can I use some of the ideas I've been working on? from that for this i said if you, yeah if you want to sure yeah go ahead so he you know he basically took some of the pieces from his the fury force which he was still just developing like he had he wanted them to have a their secret headquarters was like under the chapel i think or under the chaplain's house or something and uh a few other things like just transferred them over to gi joe and after that it's all Larry. I mean, the only uh, other contributions, uh, I made a couple of suggestions once in a while, but but uh, Archie Goodwin created the Cobra Command and the Cobra Commando Commandos. Um, you want to hear how that happened? <laughs> Let's go for it. Yeah. All right. So uh, so uh, the, Larry wrote a story, an outline of what it would be. And it's like a first issue. And I rewrote it uh, not to change anything. But Larry wrote it like a Marvel plot, and I said, "This is a this is marketing. This is this is a pitch piece." So I sort of melodramatized it a little bit, and uh, I mean, it didn't change anything that was in it. I just I just you know threw in some football cliches, and he would not be denied stuff like that. And uh, toy, toy toy guys loved it. 
<laughs> is this with is this with Hasbro as the audience in mind? Yes, that, yes, yeah. because because I mean that story was probably going to decide it either way, uh, uh-huh. whether they were going to go with us or not. And so Larry's story was brilliant, and and I just you know kind of uh, made it a little uh, more dramatic. I just told it more dramatically for Hasbro, and uh, and that was that was fine. And they got that; they loved it, and and so uh, we we started on it. And so Larry was creating characters and he was on the phone with them all the time. And we had several meetings where they would t- tell us about technology that they had. And, you know, Larry would come up with some way to use it. And so, all right, finally comes their, their they get their prototypes done. And they, we went up to Pawtucket, flew up Mike Hobson, me, Larry, and Archie. I think that's all. Anyway, we flew up to Pawtucket. And we're sitting in this big conference room and they bring in the prototypes and they show us everything that's going to be in the launch. And of course, the first, the early launch, the spring launch is your lower price items, is the figures and, you know, small things. Uh, the, the, there's sort of a second launch in usually August where that's where they introduce the play sets and the more expensive items for Christmas. So we're looking at all these prototypes. They look, they look great, you know. Um, and uh, Archie, uh, who I, he I, he wasn't really involved with GI Joe. I just brought him along because he was smart. <laughs> so he's looking at all this stuff, and he says, "You don't have any villains." And they said, "No, no, villains don't sell. We're not doing villains." And he says, "Who are they gonna fight?" And then Larry and I are looking at each other. He's right. And so we're start with the three of us are arguing with them about having a villain. And they said, "They said, all right, we'll have one." bad guy figure what do you got and archie pipes up and he says he's we're going to call him they call this evil organization called cobra and we're going to be the cobra commander and the cobra commandos and and I, I think he just did that off the top of his head and um and they said well can you give us a you know some uh, drawings some visual and larry says you'll have it tomorrow and so so we did and they did, I think, that that first part of the launch, the first the initial launch, they had one Cobra Commando. And guess what? It was one of their better-selling figures because if a, if a, a kid buys five G.I. Joes, he wants five bad guys. So he buys that toy five times. And uh, that's the rich kids, I guess. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, uh, you know, the, the, it, was, it worked really well. In fact, it worked so well. That each new year of G.I. Joe, it, it became about what new villains we can introduce. You know, <laughs> you know the, the the dreadnoughts and the all you know whatever. So uh, so and then Larry was really good at creating. Even if they had a suggestion, he'd make it work. And a lot of stuff he suggested, a lot of characters, um, just you know, uh, he it came out of his head. Uh, one of my well, Larry and I did this together. I guess one of our contributions was. Of course, in the comic book, Larry introduced all kinds of strong female characters, you know, really good ones, but they weren't making any female figures. And so I brought it up. Why don't you have, you know, female figures? And we're arguing in favor of that. And they're saying, uh, female figures don't sell. That's what you said about villains. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I, I said, I said, do vehicles sell? They said, well, yeah, of course. I said, make the drivers women. And he's and he he's oh well 
Yeah, maybe. And somehow then we we eventually, I don't know, right away or, or later, but I guess Larry talked them into, was it Scarlet was the first one? Or and I remember there was right. the Baroness, there was Scarlet. There was and there was um, a lady. female driver called Cover Girl. Yeah, and then there was Lady with... Lady something or other. Lady J. Yes, Lady J. Sorry. This is why you have to ask Larry, because he remembers all everything. You know, I, I remember the beginning part where I was involved. But but we uh, we worked closely with with Hasbro, and I'll tell you they they uh, they they were so happy to work with Larry, and uh, it's a good thing he was having fun where he was, or I think they would have hired him away. Hmm. Jim, issue one of GI Joe is uh, I forget if it's double sized or triple sized. Uh, I, I I have a I have it in a book right there. But I think it's double. Double it okay. So and it's it's a dollar fifty when issue two is uh, you know a month later is sixty cents and issue one of GI Joe is also on Baxter paper. Is can you talk about the 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 creative decision and the business decision of launching with such an expensive object? Well, it didn't seem expensive to Hasbro, and they wanted us to do kind of a deluxe thing, so we did, and that's why it cost more. So we. That was the cover price. Uh, G.I. Joe number one was the first uh, comic book ever offered to the direct market returnable. Uh, the uh, um, it, it was we knew it was going to be good, and we wanted that first issue. I thought was pretty impressive, um, and so we used to uh, uh, the direct market was fairly new, and we we would Marvel would fly all of the distributors, there were 18 of them at the time, into some location, some nice place, like uh, this particular one I'm talking about, I think it was in, in Florida, around Orlando somewhere, I believe. Um, and so we would go there and talk to all the distributors at once. And, you know, how can we help you? How do we make it better? What can we do? And we'd also take the opportunity to tell them what we had coming out, trying to, you know, pitch it to them. So uh, at that time, we were about to launch G.I. Joe. And uh, so uh, I, I was talking about G.I. Joe and I was booed off the stage. I was like, wait a minute, what, what's wrong? You know, we don't want it. War doesn't sell. We're not interested. It's not war. It's terror. Same thing, you know. And they, they just were hating on it. Right. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And, and, and so uh, uh, I, uh, I, I talked to the, uh, the other executive there, Mike Hobson. We both reported to the president. And I said, well, what do you think we should do here? So I said, you know, Moffat Returnable? Or, he said, that's a good idea. Let's tell him. And, they, we, and then he said, got up and said, look, you guys need this book. There's not going to be anyone in America who doesn't know G.I. Joe. You, you need this book. He said, tell you what, we'll make it returnable. You know, buy, take some. Doesn't go send them back, get your money back. And so on a, a Marvel number one in those days, any Marvel number one, you, 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 you could expect to sell 400, 500,000 copies of a, of a number one. The direct market ordered 100,000 returnable. And I'm telling you the day that book hit the, hit the, hit the shops, our phones were ringing off the hook. They wanted more and more and more. And of course, by that at that point, the number two and I think three had already been ordered. So we had to do all kinds of book, bookkeeping 
to adjust the orders and everything. But it was a big hit right from the get-go, and it was it was it was really good. Why didn't they want GI Joe? Because it was war. Yes. Also, our sales manager at the time, a guy named Mike Friedrich, nice guy. He, all, he's just a, a sort of a, uh, I don't know. He's, he's a pacifist. He's anti-military. He's he's an extreme pacifist, and he was actually talking people out of it. That's our sales guy. Our marketing guy, marketing sales guy, is is going to all the retailers and distributors and telling them, "Don't buy this." <laughs> if you say Mike Friedrich in Larry's presence, he will growl. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, we solved the problem, and because of that, Marvel and Friedrich parted peacefully. Uh, and, and, you know, he did a lot of good things while he was there. That just, that was that one thing. It just uh, hit him the wrong way and he wasn't going to, he wouldn't promote it. So uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's how that, that all happened. It, it was, um, it was just, you know, we wanted to do a deluxe package. Well, Hasbro wanted us to do a deluxe package. We did. That paper is expensive. I don't know. I don't remember how we decided on that price. Uh, it was me and the financial guy and the circulation director. But um, it didn't seem outrageous. I mean, we, we had um, other, you know, good quality books that, that were also more expensive than the 65 centers. Uh, if you, 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 so you have, you, you have at the ready sales for the direct market of issue one. Do you know what they were for the newsstand market or as a ratio what they might have been? Well, newsstand, of course, it's, you, it's, it's sell through. And, and you, you, you send 10,000 comics to a local independent distributor wholesaler he uh let's say he sells seven thousand right it was affidavit uh returns in other words they didn't have to send any physical evidence back and so they lie and they'd say they sold four thousand forty percent or, or five thousand fifty percent so gi joe was on the very high end of our typical scale and i, I don't remember exactly what the number was but it was the best selling newsstand book that month and you know something like the x-men was you know it was selling several hundred thousand three hundred four thousand on the x on the uh, newsstand so that's a that's a high number gi joe was also our number one subscription book the more subscriptions than anything it was any any other title it was it it, it dwarfed the rest of the line because uh, people who loved it really loved it and <laughs> uh and also harry did a great job on it he he was he, he was the guy who made it go and, and he did a lot of it himself. And I guess I technically edited it, but it, you know, you don't have to tell Larry anything. He knows what he's doing. And this, this period was, was still quite early in the infancy of the, the direct market, right? Yes. But, so yes. I don't, I don't know when we're getting to 82, what sort of percentage it, it was, but was it like typically what, 10%, 20%? So, Let's see. In '82, uh, um, well, I mean, it really started it, when I came in, in in January '78, and I I was looking at the print. Uh, now I was privy to the print orders, and I'm looking at the print orders, and there's newsstand copies, there's military, there's Whitman copies, there's subscription, maybe something else, and then at the bottom was this number, and it said Seagate, and it was numbers went like 50, 75, 100. You know, and, and so what is Seagate? So I went to a circulation guy and I said, what's Seagate? And he closed the door and he said, it's, it's look, I made a little deal with this guy, Phil Soling, you know, a friend. 
and uh, he's, I'm giving a real deep discount. It's just to get a little more volume, and, and, and it, you know, it's, just, it's cost plus. It's, 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 you know, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Who am I going to tell? Um, so anyway, uh, um, uh, Be because guy, because it's not returnable. The, the direct well, market no, is is not returnable. Well, that is not returnable, and it was also he was selling he was selling comics out the back door to his buddy. So, but at non-returnable. And so, uh, so anyway, this guy Chuck Rosansky was a retailer in Denver. Uh, came, he came to see me, and he, he said, he said, well, I he was happy to see him. He said, well, your number, your second choice. He said, is I really wanted to see the president of the company. He won't talk to me. But the the, the notion that Jim Golden would ever talk to some retailer or something, this is not wasn't going to happen. He couldn't care less. That that's my problem. Uh, so anyway, so. Uh, he Chuck told me, he said, look, we all love Phil. Phil Sewing's a great guy. He's but he's kind of a bottleneck, and you know, this it's also not legal. You can't just sell to one guy. I said I get you in to see Golden. Uh, so so I I called upstairs and and, and said you got to talk to this guy. And so we came up there. We had a meeting, and Chuck had an eleven point plan for what should be what should, what we should do. By the end of that meeting, we had enacted ten of his eleven points. And so that was publishing trade terms, opening up to anybody who could meet the minimums, uh, you know, bringing it out of the closet. Guess what? Phil did better because all of a sudden the market is huge and, and, and he was the first. And so he had a lot of um, a lot of traction and he actually did better than he had been doing before. So it wasn't a bad thing to do to Phil. And much better. And um, uh, so, you know, the, the 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 terms, however, that he and his, the, the crony terms that Ed and uh, Phil had cooked up remained. And even though it was cost plus, it was uh, when the volume started to get bigger, that turned out to be a lot of money. And uh, so because, uh, you know, your unit cost goes down as the print run goes up. And, uh, you know, uh, it's you, you get more per book. So uh, uh, and it started growing real fast. I mean, from those first early numbers where I saw it was 50, 100, you know, X-Men is 300. Hmm. The ones we knew were the best were the ones that sold the best. Fans had good taste. And so um, it's a good barometer, you know, when tell how tell if you're doing something right or not. Anyway, uh, by a year or two into it, it was the numbers were in the many thousands. So as a percentage, I'm not exactly sure. I would say in by 82, might have been 25%, something like the 30 max, I'd say. And very quickly it became the, the dog instead of the tail. And, and with, the, with the launch of issue one and, and the subsequent issues i think they went back to to multiple printings yes and, yeah. and issue two i think particularly was re was was really difficult to find because people you know it was so under ordered you can't believe i mean if they if they took only a hundred thousand copies of one and it was returnable imagine what they ordered on two yeah. was it unusual to go to go back to for, for print multiple printings at, at that time in the way that happened with gi joe yeah it almost never happened with a, a regular comic book and usually by the time it was um that we knew we probably could have sold more it was, it was kind of too late the only other book that stands out in my mind that uh, we went back uh, and did multiple printings of was the uh, uh bio biography of pope john paul ii and we printed 
zillions of this. I think that's the greatest selling comic book of all time worldwide. And actually, sort of, there was also you went back to the to the well because you know at that time, sort of trade paperbacks and things weren't weren't the norm in the way they are to, today. But it was collected a couple of times, wasn't it, in different editions? Yeah, um, I mean, it was the, the digests and and uh, yeah, that that same thing happened with Star Wars when it was such a big hit. It ended up being reprinted in every format known to man: small, big, you know, uh, regular size. It was it was such a hit, and and every time we did do it, we'd sell out, and they'd want more. And uh, it was so you know, GI Joe was like that not 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 as big as Star Wars, not as big as the Pope, but <laughs> really good. <laughs> so so uh, you know, like, like I say, Larry Hom is like winning the lottery. You know, he he, he really I like a guy who pours his heart into it. That's what I want. Guy just doesn't care, and he's just turning it out. I'd rather I'd rather he leave. But uh, Larry cared desperately. He wanted it to be just right, and he did the best he could. And, and so Larry sort of you know, said publicly that you know he really, really wanted to to, to be writing at, at that that time. So, so I guess he he sort of really embraced the the opportunity. He said he would you know would have written anything. Yeah, uh, I, I don't and- know why. I, I don't think it was any kind of prejudice involved or anything. But but when Larry came to Marvel, he expected he could get some freelance writing, and for a while he wasn't getting anything. You know, and so he asked me, he said, look, I, can I do some freelance for, um, uh, you know, the, the Lampoon people, uh, but 20th century, 21st century, whatever it was. And I said, sure. And uh, and then the word gets around that Larry's looking for writing. I, I don't know why people didn't know this, but uh, uh, and then, you know, he started getting more stuff. And, and I, then he had G.I. Joe and he didn't need any more. Yeah, that, that filled him up. And and he he tells the story that that um, that nobody else wanted to to write GI Joe and and uh, he was the last one to be be asked because his his office was the furthest one down from the the corridor. But that's not true either way. I mean the 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 furthest one down was Mark Gruenwald. Larry was couples couple doors up from there. And uh, no, I mean that's where it's one of the places we differ. As I told you at the beginning. It's a difficult book to write, okay, especially to write enough to please Larry. Um, and uh, uh, and at, at the time, my policy was you couldn't be the writer and the editor. Uh, you couldn't ed- edit your own stuff. So I, I sort of oversaw it, and that didn't involve much time because there was never anything wrong. And uh, so... Uh, uh, Larry, Larry uh, when he was able to ask himself to write it, <laughs> it, it he wrote it. It wasn't any anybody, uh, you know, he, he was having difficulty finding people because it was hard. But, you know, when, when we worked it out so he could write it, he could write it. And he, it was did, did fine. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, either of you, but I think the credited uh, editor for the book at the start was was Denny O'Neill. It was, was that, yeah. Is that likely yeah. to be more of a like traffic control of of just getting? Well, you know, as I may have mentioned at the beginning, Denny didn't like toys, and uh, the reason I originally said, "Well, Larry will do all the creative," and then. Denny can be the editor is because Denny was in the Navy, you know, and Denny knew, knew military things. 
he, he was he was he really wasn't interested. So fair, fairly soon after that, it, we changed it. Uh, Tom DeFalco is the editor for the first couple of issues. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. Tom Tom was doing that for. Uh, Denny O'Neill takes over with I think issue seven. Uh-huh. Seven. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> I was going to ask this story because it's a little bit later on in the in the history, but there's the there's the famous story uh, of issue twenty one, the silent issue, and as Larry tells it, uh, he can't can't quite remember exactly the details of of um, how it all came came about, but it was a deadline crunch; they had to produce the issue, and I, and I think part of the story is that. Uh, there, 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 there might, may have been an issue produced, but it was lost somewhere in in Denny O'Neill's office and on packs of stacks of uh, of board. Does does that ring true to you? Well, I, I I don't know that in particular, but but you know, Denny was getting older, and 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 uh, he he would occasionally make mistakes. I, towards the end of the time he was there. Uh, one time, the two artists came in having drawn the same story. He oh, gave wow. it to this guy, forgot, and then he gave it to some other guy. After he left Marvel and went to DC, the first script he gave to somebody, he gave twice. And so two guys did the job. So, so I mean, uh, that, I I would believe that. I I, I just uh, I don't remember that incident in particular. As far as the the silent issue, Larry told me about it. Larry Larry was good about keeping me posted, and. Uh, you know, if anybody else had said that, unless it was Goodwin or maybe Louise, I would have thought, eh, hmm, I don't know, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, Larry trusted him. He, I, no worries. You know, I was fine with it. He did a tremendous job. And I, I, I had him paid for the script. I had him paid for writing it. Because at first he just vouchered, I guess, did he do the art? Well, yeah. he, he didn't, uh, he didn't voucher. He didn't voucher the writing because there's no words in it. And so I said, no, you give me a voucher for the script. I said, it's harder to do it, you know, silent, you know, I said, and you still have to do the story, you know, you know, so we paid him for, for uh, the plot and the story, the writing script. And, uh, and so there's this little little old lady upstairs and her name was Millie Sheriff. And her job was when the books came out, she would compare the printed book to the vouchers. You know, to see that. All right, let's see. Yeah, there's 22 pages, and there's a voucher for 22 pages of pencils, and and then she comes to issue 21, and she she's like, "There's a voucher for script, and there's no words." <laughs> so so uh, she called me. What is what's going on here? And I told her, I explained to her, Millie, it's it's actually more difficult to do it the way Larry did. I said, and it, he there's a story there, and he had to tell it with pantomime. And I said, that's difficult. And so, you know, they're, they're, I don't care if there's words, you know, we're paying them. So uh, she, she, all right. Okay. And uh, she was the bookkeeper. I mean, it wasn't like she had authority over it. You know, I could do anything I wanted, but, but uh, it, it was her job to check, you know, <laughs> and a little coda to that story is that uh, later uh, as a lark, uh, John Byrne had two all white characters fighting in a blizzard. And so he had just, white panels with sound effects and dialogue, you know, but no art. I paid him for the art because I thought, you know, making what's happening in those things clear without any picture, just in the dialogue and so forth. I said, that's, that's difficult. We're going to pay you for those pages, John. And and we did. 
And, you know, that also got me a phone call from Millie. <laughs> but she was a really sweet lady. But, I mean, she was, you know, a bulldog when it came to doing her job and doing it right. You know, and, and so uh, I said, it's okay, Millie. Yes, I, 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 I approve this. It's fine. There's a set of characters in the world of G.I. Joe, the October Guard. It's the Russian equivalent to G.I. Joe. It's this Russian top secret squad. And they first appear in issue six of the Marvel series. Uh, This is an issue drawn by Trimpy. There is online a uh, photo uh, scans from an ash can of that issue seemingly when it was going to be issue three. And uh, in this earlier version, it's not the October Guard who made return appearances in the G.I. Joe comic, showed up in the cartoon, showed up as action figures later. It is a creator-owned team from Trimpy and Tom DeFalco called Pravda Patrol. Oh. Does any of this ring a bell? These, Pravda these, Patrol these, rings a bell, yeah. These characters showed up one time uh, in 82 in an issue of Bizarre Adventures, one of the black and white magazines. Mm-hmm. And and what seems to have happened is everyone at Marvel or some people at Marvel thought it would be okay to put creator-owned characters that Trimpy and DeFalco owned in an issue of G.I. Joe. And that at a certain point, Hasbro says no. And then it looks like this issue is delayed or rescheduled. Uh, the characters, their faces are redrawn and their names and the word balloons are fixed so that it's this other set of characters now that's technically appearing. So yeah. uh, since I've just told this whole story, does this ring a bell? Is this a story you can tell? Yeah, I, there's not much more to tell. I, I, I think that uh, DeFalco probably being, it was a little self-dealing there, but um, uh, no, Hasbro was not going to have anything in there that they didn't own. And uh and so when this came out, when this when we saw what was happening, um, that no. When then somehow we worked it out that they could be reconfigured into something else, and that issue was was used. I didn't remember all those details until you told me. But yeah, that that's about what happened. Um, and it just uh, uh, when I saw it, I saw everything before it went out. Well, almost everything. I sometimes I was over in England training people or. And then either Mark Grunewald or DeFalco would sign the books out. But uh, I don't know if I was there or not. I mean, if I was and I was aware of it, uh, uh, I wasn't aware that it was creator own. I either forgot or I don't know. But um, uh, at any rate, it, it got sorted out and it was everybody was satisfied at, at the end of it. And uh, I, we didn't do ash cans in those days. I never even heard the word ash can in reference to a comic book. Um, I, uh, uh, apologies if I'm using that term casually. Uh, what I'm seeing online are, are photocopies, yeah, black and white right. photocopies of the artwork. Yeah, that's 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 likely. But um, uh, no, it was uh, it was a little little mess there. But uh, not it wasn't major. No, nope, you know. Nobody went to prison over it. It's fine. <laughs> so you just, I'm going to ask a general question. You you just mentioned um, traveling to England. And before we uh, filmed our intro, you described how often you would go and what you might do. Can you tell us what kind of traveling you did for Marvel? H- how often 
where you went and what you did when you were there. Some of this is conventions. Some of this is like Hasbro. What's your year of travel look like at Marvel? Well, the first year since the company other than Star Wars was dying, uh, and I was trying to change things and rebuild it and, and, uh, you know, uh, make things better. I was on the road to conventions almost every week. I, I, I was out there, you know, it's new at Marvel or it's all different. Wait till you see, you know, blah, blah, trying to get people to look again because a lot of them weren't looking anymore. So, uh, I traveled an awful lot that first year and, and we did start to really turn it around. And so, uh, and I got to know the upstairs executives, but I didn't really get to know when I was associate editor. And among them were the licensing people, the vice president of domestic and vice president of international. The international people, they, they take a small group of the vice president and some, some assistants, and often the president would go. And they go to these book fairs in Europe. Um, uh, we went to either um, Bologna Book Fair, which is a children's book fair, but they did comics, or... The, the main one we went every year was uh, uh, Frankfurt Book Fair. And uh, as I got to know these these executives and uh, I was invited to a couple meetings, I was uh, as new editor in chief. Uh, we had the Germans in town, German licensees in town visiting, and uh, they all wanted to meet me. And, and so I went to lunch with them and the president of the company, the vice president of business affairs and the uh, VP of licensing. And, uh, and, and they, the, the Europeans know their stuff. They, they, they would ask questions that no one at the table could answer except me. And so then I started getting more routinely invited to these meetings and some of them took place in my office and, and, uh, uh, and, and, then uh, that first year, uh, they'd gotten the drift that I'm pretty good at selling marble. And so uh, they asked me to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair. So I did and um, was able, was very helpful selling things because I actually knew what they were. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they, they'd uh, ask the foreign publisher would ask a question about the X-Men or Daredevil. And you'd see the licensing people looking down her list to see if, it, you know, <laughs> what's that? Um hmm. So, uh, so anyway, I could, so I, I did the color commentary and they did the, they made the deals and, um, and it would work really well. So that first year I was traveling every place, all over the place, all these small conventions, big conventions, whatever. And, uh, uh, San Diego, the, 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 they didn't have a New York comic con then, but there was, uh, Phil Sulling's July con July 4th. So I was, I was like, uh, as many places as I could go to, you know, um, uh, to, to preach my my story there after the second year we were doing better i didn't go to as many shows but i started arranging for marvel to send people places uh which whichever year was the year of uh, the death of phoenix might have been two years and might have been three but uh we had started helping guys get to conventions so there was more than me out there and, uh, but usually in those days, the convention would pay. They'd fly you in, put you up in a hotel, give you a table. Uh, so the year that uh, the death of Phoenix was happening, 
and the sales just exploded. Took X-Men from sort of middle of the road to number one in the industry where it stayed for 20 years. But anyway, so that year I got a call from, uh, 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 what's his name? Shell Dorf out of San Diego. And uh, like, like I said, remember the conventions are the ones paying for people. And, and he said to Jim, we'd like you to be our guest this year. You know, we'll pay your airfare. We'll pay your hotel, you know? And I said, Shell, I'll pay my own. I got an expense account. I said, I, I will, I will come on my own dime happily. So use that money to get somebody else. And he says, have to be Marvel. I said, I don't care. Uh, just, just do something good for the industry. And when I said, and furthermore, I'll tell you what, if you promise to give them stage time, I will bring my, on my dime, all my, all expenses, the entire X-Men team. And I, I almost did it. I mean, there were, there was Chris, of course he went, uh, John Byrne went, uh, Terry Austin went, uh, Tom Orzakowski was there. I don't think Glynis, the colorist, I don't think she wanted to go for some reason. Oh, and the editor, yeah, Louise, Louise. Um, so, so we took the whole X-Men team out there. Marvel paid for everything. And, uh, and, uh, and Shell did his, he lived up to what he said. They were on stage a lot and boy, they were mobbed. I mean, there were people standing by the door to listen because you couldn't get in the room. And um, so that really was a good thing. <laughs> the next year, all the companies are sending <laughs> sending people to conventions. You know, we were also the first to have a booth. Next year, I'll be, well, everybody has a booth. <laughs> um, but uh, and DC had their famous million dollar booth. Uh, well, ours was little, but it, it functioned. Uh, you know, I, I, it, we just, there was uh, quite a time. And so I was doing some traveling the second year. And of course, the book fairs, Bologna Book Fair, Frankfurt Book Fair. And I think it was probably, and I did go to the UK sometimes because um, uh, we didn't really have a a, a, a production facility there, but, but we had uh, people over there managing the business. And I went there sometimes. Then after the, uh, we uh, officially opened Marvel UK, and I don't know what year that was. It might have been 79. It could have been 80. I don't know. But uh, um, it wasn't 78. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, right around there, near the beginning. Then I started going over there regularly, too. And what would happen is if I'd go to Frankfurt or go to visit some licensee, Barcelona, Paris, whatever, on the way back, I would stop at the London office, spend at least a few days with them, and then and then come back. And the managing director there was uh, Robert Sutherland. And uh, we spent a good bit of time together talking about, you know, how to make it better. Um, how to fix it, uh, uh, whatever. And uh, good man, smart man. But at first we were publishing it, or we were putting it, doing the work in New York. We had a British department. And that was not too good. Um, but uh, um, uh, the, the, when we had Marvel UK and it was run by Robert Sutherland and, and he started getting some great people like Alison Gill and, and others. Uh, I think Barry Kitson started working for them at one oh. point. Yeah, I mean, that that was much better. Uh, and some of their books, I guess they were reprint or um, like Care Bears. Care Bears was the number one comic book in the UK for a while. Better <laughs> than the X-Men, better than, was it Rupert? Yeah, is that right? Rupert the Bat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were, doing, we were doing really good numbers with Care Bears there. And, and X-Men did well and uh, some other things. And then, I, then they were creating some of their own. 
<laughs> what was I going to? What was I going to be? Care Bears um, for you. I know that. <laughs> there's there's a there's another licensed property, isn't it? Care Bears. Yeah. Uh, they were all new people. They they kind of you know they were very smart, very good people, uh, very mm. creative people, um, but they they weren't trained. And so uh, for a few years there, Marvel would send me over, you know, could be like five, six times a year to train the staff. I taught them creative editorial, uh, in-house production, printing production. I didn't know as much about the distribution there as I did here, but, the, you know, helped with that. And uh, and uh, it, it, in, in some cases, some of the financial stuff that uh, they needed to know. I think Allison Gill was there at the time. And she was, she's brilliant, but she was, you know, pr pretty new. And so, you know, just trying to coach everybody on everything because I'd been in the business so long. Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to um, Richard Starkings uh, mm. last year. We had an interview with who was the yeah. uh, editorial at Marvel UK at the time. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that was fun going over there. And, and uh, you know, I, I had the expense account, so we all go out to the public. <laughs> Yeah, you were popular. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they would have liked me anyway, you know. <laughs> Even if I was a bad guy. I was all right. Excellent. Where are you, by the way? I am on the south south coast of England in a place called Brighton. Oh, I was there. World Science Fiction Convention was there. Oh wow! Yeah. When yeah. was that? It was years ago. It was maybe 87 or 88 something like that and uh yeah we did all the tour stuff went around to, there's mm -hmm. a, a, a royal summer home there i think um, that's right it's the brighton correct? pavilion it's called yes and and um uh we got to know uh, we it was me and michelini david michelini were there and uh we got to kind of got to know this this one um, uh, bellboy and <laughs> Uh, we asked him, uh, we'd like to go not to, this is kind of a touristy town, you know, we'd like mm -hmm. to go to a, like a real pub. So he, he's, I'll arrange it. So gave a nice tip and he, he had a car come and pick us up, take us way out in the country. Mm -hmm. We walk into this place and we're the only two ugly Americans in there and the place <laughs> falls silent. <laughs> like, I don't think I get that. wrong here. Um, American so werewolf, I, isn't it? Yeah. But so he wanted to leave and I said, no. So I started asking people questions. Hi, you know, we're from out of town. You know, you do, how do you do this? You, know, you go up there and get the beer. Or, you know. Once <laughs> you start asking questions, they're all helping you. And now yeah, you're buddies, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and we were, we for, turned out they were all wonderful people. They just thought, what are these guys doing here? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, it was, it, and we had a great evening. I, and I couldn't, of course, couldn't work the telephone. So they, they called the, the cab for me. And, right, and, right, 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 right. <laughs> Uh, it was just great. I'd like to go back there someday and see if we can repeat the experience. But yeah, that'd be great. I was thinking back to the to the Marvel deal specifically with with Hasbro, um, and I was reading your your blog, and you described that Marvel did character and story creation is what you you said rather than just comics. So so was there um, a direct con uh, sort of contractual link between Hasbro and Marvel to to help with that? character creation rather than to to larry as a, a freelancer our, I, I i i guess i read the contract at some point but i don't really remember our our relationship with hasbro especially on gi joe very collegial very i mean uh, they they loved him they liked us 
we work very well with them. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they were happy to have, get some, get Marvel, Larry, some credit. We, we, uh, it was just a very easy relationship. They would, they would, uh, come down for meetings, uh, and they would show us technology that they had, you know, uh, this is my phony example, but, but they'd say, look, it jumps, you know, what is it? And Larry said, we're going to call it the jump tank, you know, <laughs> jumps over <laughs> obstacles, you know. He'd always come up with something. That's funny. I made that up. But uh, but there they was a put, jumping thing called the pogo. So you know, it might be it. But but he, uh, Larry, they would show him something, and they would you know would roll or would you know just wiggle or and he always came up with some. It was naked technologies, no no skin on it. And they say, what can we do with this? We got this this technology. What do you think? And Larry would come up with something, you know, and and uh, and he was helping them. I mean, really, in, in very fundamental ways. Uh, uh, he wasn't just, you know, writing the comics. He he was really involved, and um, uh, he, so he he. I stopped going to the meetings. You know, it was just sitting there watching Larry do all the be a genius, and I, I got. I said, yeah, I know already. I don't. I don't need to see this every day. So but they'd uh, roll up to the to the Marvel offices, and you'd go into some meeting room, and they'd yeah. open a briefcase, and there'd be all of these. Bits well, of usually toys and... those big, um, I call this a a ATA cases, or they, they they had ways to transport their stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, they, we go to the conference room and in one big conference room, and they just spread all this stuff out on the table. And usually, well, it was always Larry, often me, and then sometimes we'd involve uh, a writer or artist. Um, I think uh, DeFalco, who was who was kind of my assistant, uh, he would come sometimes. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was really it was a, it was kind of fun. But like I said, it's all it's all Larry. It's like, uh, uh, and he didn't he didn't need me to, there to help. Uh, I, I I think I told you all of my contributions. <laughs> Presumably, some of these meetings are are you're looking at GI Joe and Transformers. And visionaries, presumably, some of the meetings are doubled up for several Hasbro product lines. Uh, no, oh. um, no, it was slightly different with Transformers. Uh, the way Transformers happened was uh, we'd been successful with GI Joe, and then this Hasbro executive, his name was Bob Prupus, um, came into my office, and uh, I mean, I got to know him over time and see him at Toy Fair and this and that. And he comes in with this bag and takes out this car, puts it on my desk. Said, well, that's nice. He says, watch this. Click, click, <laughs> click, click. It's a robot. Click, 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 click. It's a car. I said, wow, why does it do that? And he said, that's what I'm here to find out. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I, it, you know, I tried to, uh, whenever these toy development stuff, things would come up. Uh, I, I had written a, into the budget money for this, and I, I thought we're paying well for this because this this may make a billion dollars for somebody. So we paid really well for people to do this. I did a number of them myself, but I didn't pay myself. I, I figured, look, I'm the editor in chief. This is my job, you know. Uh, but like, when, if I hired an editor to do it, and I did sometimes, uh, I, they they get well paid. And sometimes we brought in people like uh, I remember we brought in Walt and a bunch of other people one time on this one development thing john ramita jr on one 
anyway, so it was they paid well, and uh, we were it was the, when Transformers came around. It was kind of Denny O'Neill's turn, so I asked him if he wanted to do it. Well, he wanted the money, <laughs> so, so I I kind he didn't really know what to do, and so I kind of fed him his lines. I said, well, how about this? And how about that? And then, so he he wrote it, and it just it, he just didn't care about it. I mean, Denny was a fantastic writer. But he just, it just, heart wasn't in it. He just, you know, was hoping to get a, a paycheck. So I paid him. And then I kept what parts I had made up. And uh, and I wrote the treatment myself, like what Larry did. And I rewrote, I wrote that. Uh, I did the same job, basically. And um, credit where credit is due, uh, Denny created the name Optimus Prime. That's a Denny name. Oh, wow. And uh, that's about it. Anyway, uh, so I, I presented to Hasbro my, my treatment, Cybertron, the Wikis, and, you know, the war, all that stuff. And that was what it, well, it was. It was a foundation document, you know, and they loved it. And uh, um, so they, uh, so we started on it. And I, same with, same with Joe. I turned it over to Bob Budiansky, similar kind of guy. Bob can do anything. He writes, he draws, he's, he's, he was a great editor. He's organized. He's, you know. And he really did a great job with it, just like Jack Larry did. And he created characters and so forth. Now, the relationship with Hasbro was different, though, because Hasbro had this uh, uh, this advertising agency called Griffin Bacall. All right. And Griffin Bacall was a significant size advertising agency just because of the Hasbro account. It was like 60-something percent of their, their revenues. And uh, I guess... Hassenfeld had been a college roommate or something. Anyways, he was uh, dealing with them because he was friends with either Griffin or Bacall. I don't remember which one. So they're seeing like Hasbro using us as a resource. And they're, they kept trying to wedge themselves in between us. Well, wouldn't have them with Larry. They would not. They, they, whatever they told uh, Griffin Bacall, they just still call Larry all the time. Okay. With Transformers, though, uh, Griffin Call successfully uh, wedged themselves in there. And they, 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 they at first were going to do the development after Bob Prupus had got me un- involved. But then Griffin Call was going to do it. So what happened was um, uh, we were told to send everything to Griffin Bacall. And they had started a little in-house production, executive production group called Sunbow. And so, okay, you sent my treatment there. They took my cover sheet off, put their cover sheet on, sent it to Hasbro. So everything with Transformers was kind of going in between, uh, you know, through uh, uh, Sunbow. And uh, it made it more complicated, made it more difficult. So we didn't have the same kind of relationship at all. Um, the, the, the toys were already created. They existed in Japan. It wasn't like they had to come in and show us new technology. They licensed the technology. And so there wasn't as much reason to have meetings and, and we, we never had any. And one time I was at, at our animation studio, Marvel Productions, and um, talking to Lee Gunther, who ran the operations. This is in Los Angeles. Yeah, yes. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, he said something about Transformers. And I said, I said well, you know, I, I did a creative work on that. I said, I wrote that. He said, no, you didn't. Sunbow did. He, he couldn't, wouldn't believe that I'd done it. And I said, well, 
some of the characters are named after my relatives. And <laughs> you can ask my secretary. She typed it. He, he was he, he, he thought Sunbow did it. And uh, I, I said, all right, whatever. You know, the only way I got credit for that ever was USA Today was uh, doing uh, an article on Transformers when I think I think it was when the first live action movie was coming out. And uh, I get a call from USA Today and and they wanted to talk to me about the creative work I did on the, the foundation work I did on Transformers. I said, how do you even know that? My name never appears in any credits anywhere. You know, he said, well, I just got done interviewing Erwin Hassenfeld's son and he told me all about it. He said he remembers it well. I said, oh, okay. So I told him what I'm telling you guys, and you, it ran in USA Today, which is which is nice. That's you know, I get some credit somewhere. In terms of um, this, this might follow up. Um, so um, some of much of the uh, so the 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 visuals for the characters and and the products for GI Joe and for Transformers were being driven at Hasbro, and Marvel was creating story and. Uh, what what I mean is Hasbro toy designers are designing toys. Yes. Designing right. action figures. Designing. A lot of them are from Larry's sketches or designs. Okay. Um, in 1986, there's this big animated Transformers movie that's released theatrically. And um, partly because the character, the toys are phased out every two years. And partly because the movie was an opportunity to tell a big story. Uh, Optimus Prime and Megatron, the two leaders exit stage left. And this is uh, in the monthly Marvel Transformers comic. That story isn't told, but those two characters also exit stage left. Mm -hmm. And similarly for G.I. Joe, there's this animated movie which doesn't get released theatrically because Transformers uh, tanked. And in the G.I. Joe animated movie, Cobra Commander exits stage left. And Larry Hama has told the story that uh, he he was told he had to do the same thing in the comic. He had to replace, get rid of, kill off uh, Cobra Commander. Do you remember, since, since this feels like, I mean, I understand that you're there at the beginning and then afterwards you're pretty hands-off. There's yeah, an editor. Didn't need okay. to. Yeah. So do, does, this, does this ring a bell that this was sort of a larger top-down decision or directive coming in? Does this ring a bell? Well, the only one who could tell me anything would be the president. He never opened a comic book and wasn't interested. As long as I was making money, he didn't care. At one time, somebody, uh, Gene Colan, called him, probably to complain about me, because um, I kept insisting that people do do their jobs. So Galton calls me. He says, who's Gene Colan? And I said, he's an artist. Is he good and i said yeah he's hall of fame but he's hacking right now and he said well tell him to stop calling me <laughs> he did the same thing when john byrne had some complaint about me he calls me i was who's john byrne <laughs> he wasn't he didn't care at all all right so top down on gi joe would have been somebody like bob Prupus at hasbro telling us what to do I don't ever remember any drama. I mean, there was never any arguments or, or anything. I mean, this is what you have to do. And, you know, uh, I, I'm a, a professional and, and I would, you know, do what the client wanted. And it's the same with Larry. I mean, he he's a, was a good soldier. He, he would, you know, I mean, he might not agree with it. He might think it was uh, uh, dumb, but uh, I mean, we, uh, and I don't think necessarily he thought that was dumb, but I mean, we, we didn't, 
we didn't uh we we, we could discuss things but we, we weren't it was too good a relationship and we got along all got along so well there was no no big drama and and what was the what was the commercial relationship like in terms of direction of travel of of funds was was it was it that you were given the license to do gi joe and and use it use it and do the do, do the comics and be left alone or was there an expectation that there would be some residual going back to hasbro or or even, even indeed the other way was were they paying marvel to to you know top up the funds well it was a typical license deal they did they did get a piece of our of our, our sales they our revenues uh-huh um but uh i think it was a favored nations kind of deal and uh, it wasn't oppressive at all it was fine because you know, it sounds so well yeah they, they get some share for owning it okay i don't know i, I think it pretty went pretty well like i said i kind of stopped going to the meetings and maybe larry has some stories about you know things that happened that i, I didn't wasn't even aware of but uh, as far as i knew it was all it was all fine and we did not get a, a whole lot of uh I don't. I don't know if they ever actually called up and complained about anything, or else, or said, "Well, this has to change." Unless it was a situation like you just described, where you know they wanted it to be consistent. All right, you know, fine. I mean, our production studio, uh, we tried to coordinate with them. They didn't. They didn't want to be bothered. So, uh, hmm. uh, you know, Margaret Lesh wanted. She ran the place, and, and she wanted to have more involvement. You know, more cooperation between us but uh lee gunther was the operations guy and, and he just resisted he didn't he didn't want to he, he had enough on his place and i don't want to be bothered having to coordinate with anybody okay whatever so we did our thing we did it the best we could yeah i i asked the that last question because because you know the story of the origin as, it, as it's told hasbro looked on the on the comics as not just an end in itself but also a means of being able to advertise the toys and on with the TV commercials, they, they advertised yeah. the, the comics so, so that they could do, uh, you know, longer, more interesting adverts with, uh, with animation. Yeah, so there was a lot of regulation at that time, probably still is about advertising to children and in particular toys. Uh, you have to show real kids playing with the real toys. There are a lot of limits on what you can do in terms of animation or dramatization. All right. Well, there were no restrictions whatsoever on advertising comic books because nobody did. And uh, so Hasbro, maybe this is Griffin Bacall, could be. Um, they decided that, hey, if we made these advertisements nominally about the comics and everybody knows it's a toy, you know. And so at the end of every they'd have an exciting animation, you know, and talk about how wonderful G.I. Joe was. And at the end, they'd for like under a second, they'd flash a picture of the comic book. <laughs> and um, and so they got away with you know, incredible commercials that, that you know, uh, you know, uh, made uh, not only kids, everybody like was said, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, and, and, and uh, so it was very clever on their part. And it had it really wasn't much to do with the comics at all. So. I guess you'll take that as the the free advertising. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it, how could it hurt? You know, I mean, I, I wish they'd actually, you know, had left the comic book image on the screen for more than you know a quarter of a second. But uh, but at least we got some. There's some also the the voiceover tag. What happens next? Find out in Marvel Comics. Oh yeah, that was great. That was nice. 
And um, uh, uh, the, the, the one time we actually did a G.I. Joe commercial, I can't remember why, it was kind of at the end of my time, but I believe we actually made one for the comic book, probably working with Hasbro. I, I, I don't know. There was a lot going on at, at the end of my tenure there. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't there a lot of the times. So if I can, so Mark in his previous question was, was asking about the initial deal. And your answer was that, uh, Hasbro would get some of the, some of the a, a royalty or a, a typical license deal. Yeah. So, uh, Marvel was paying Hasbro for the license to be able to create a G.I. Joe comic book. There was a like flat fee for each issue or for the year or for the three year term. No, we just had a contract that said they got a royalty. That's all. I mean, okay. I, we never paid them any buy in money. I mean, our okay. buy in was our creative. OK. And uh, and and so we did. They get some some royalty. And, I, and like I said, it wasn't a very aggressive one. I think we had a sweetheart deal with them. The only mm -hmm. thing that that kind of really went wrong is that for the first year we were going to license it for them and our licensing people just failed big time i mean they, they were terrible and uh and so uh, they took that away from us and they started doing it with their own agency and they did very well and and would this would this be managing the license to be able to sell it on to other people so like yeah to sell it for all of the merchandise for t-shirts for, for, for whatever uh, you know apparel hats hats and uh, yeah, and and you know that that kind of stuff. So they had they had uh, all kinds of uh, of toys that they didn't make that you know they like were licensed mm. to to thing. I think they had a uh, a ride on you know something a little kid could ride on that was yeah just, like a tricycle thing, and there were yeah yeah there are you know and yeah so stuff some of it that they they wouldn't do themselves but somebody they'd license to somebody and be fine mark i will forgive you for forgetting that in 2011 early on in the history of my gi joe blog i posted uh, a scan of a like one page slick about marvel doing the licensing for uh gi joe um <laughs> what a disaster uh, <laughs> you mentioned jim going to toy fair so mm -hmm. that's every year uh, at the end of it's right the around valentine's day and in february yeah um did you go every year for those years that that marvel was making yeah and every year even after that you know i, I started going uh i think uh well not the first year i was editor-in-chief because i was only editor-in-chief for about you know six weeks at that point and i had way too much to do i couldn't i couldn't take any time off and uh and then uh but the second year i started going to toy fair and i went every year and uh uh got to know a lot of people not only at hasbro but um a lot of toy companies mattel and, and, and others and uh i got got uh, i got to meet a guy named ralph schaefer ralph schaefer uh, was the co-president of tcfc those characters from cleveland and um they they did a lot of toy creation and a lot of licensing for companies that for whom they created this choice for instance they with along with bernie loomis toy genius uh, uh their people at tcfc uh, created the care bears and uh and strawberry shortcake and uh, holly hobby and, and lots of stuff 
mostly girl stuff. I mean, almost all girl stuff. Uh, the only thing boy thing they ever did was Mad Balls. But uh, uh, so I got to know them, and um, they liked us, and, and they actually proposed to me that that let's do a joint venture, you know. And I said, "Wow, little tiny Marvel, giant." Uh, well, TCFC was big, but but it, it was part of American Greetings, so it's huge. And uh, that never came to pass, but uh, that was sort of um, farther down the road uh, toward the end of my time there. But uh, so it never came to pass. But because we had developed such a good relationship, when I just wanted to do uh, kids comics, I call them up and they gave me the Care Bears and some other stuff, strawberry shortcake, whatever. Didn't give it to me, but you know, licensed it on very nice terms because they liked us and they could have taken that stuff anywhere, but but uh, they liked us. And and uh, as a matter of fact, um, they like me. Go figure. But uh, uh, when we talk, started talking about this joint venture. I was about the time Marvel was being sold. It was chaotic. I did not like the way that the old owners were kind of selling us down the river. Uh, the, the owners were the board of directors of Cadence, which included a president and a vice president from Marvel. So it was six guys took Cadence off the stock market, took it private. And so six guys owned all the Cadence companies, including Marvel. And they were selling them off, cash in. Well, Marvel was the last and it was the crown jewel because we were actually worth something. And I, I just felt they were just really savaging our people. They, they, anything to put money on the bottom line, cash out the pension plan, you know, get rid of our excellent health care insurance and replace it with a crummy HMO you had to pay for. Uh, you know, it's, they, they just stopped paying people on some of the programs I'd installed. They just wouldn't pay them. And, you know, I, I so I spent a lot of time uh, fighting that. And then um, I kind of forced them to fire me, you know, because the new owners were worse than the old ones. And uh, when they finally did sell it, the new owners were worse than the old ones. You know, I was so ignorant in those days. I didn't realize I could have stopped that because I was a key man and they couldn't sell the company without me. So, but I didn't know that. Uh, you know, Paul Levitz would have known. I, 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 I never went to business school. Um but anyway, so so after the new owners took over, I, I made them fire me to get my severance pay, and um, so uh, you know, so at that that last year, I I wasn't around much, and uh, you know, some some stuff went on there that I, I wouldn't probably have let happen. But uh, where were we going with that? What was the I um. Circling back to Toy Fair, oh, uh, so so I can imagine you at Toy Fair in 83, 84, 85, 86 because of G.I. Joe right. and because of Transformers. But it also sounds like you were going there as a representative of Marvel. Yeah. And, well, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and maybe also because it's it's culturally the thing that's going on in New York that week in February. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, if I thought it was my part of my job to keep track of all that was happening in, in related industries. I mean, even magazines, I, I, I you know, those, uh, those uh, cheap magazine subscription things you get in the mail. I, 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 every month or two, I'd pick a category, you know, business magazines or women's magazines or, you know, farm magazines or what and I'd, I'd subscribe to a bunch of them and and just just you know with the magazines would come and i'd check them out see if there's anything 
interesting any new things that were going on i discovered selective binding that way and some other some other things like american baby if your baby is one you get a slightly different magazine than if your baby is two because it's selective binding there's sections they put into this one that they don't put into that one ah so i kept trying to think of ways to use this stuff and some i did but um at any rate uh the punchline to that story i was telling you is that is that when marvel uh fired me uh, somebody i think it was joe calamari called tcfc you got ralph schaefer on the phone co-president and he said uh, he said well he said we had to fire jim he said uh, so from now on you'll, you'll be working with tom defalco and and ralph said no there's nobody you have that we're interested in working with anymore click so another little pyrrhic victory for me <laughs> you know it's like somehow i always managed to not get the money but um uh, anyway I, I thought that was nice and i ran into ralph years years later and, and uh, he helped me with uh, uh, trying to get a toy deal on uh, good friends. I was at his house sometimes. Terrific. I, I had a question which we've been asking every, this is a sort of fairly abrupt ch change again, but <laughs> I had another question that we've been asking everybody uh, who was involved in the, in the launch to see what uh, memories it, it might, um, might uh, trigger. And it is uh, this image on, on screen, hopefully. Oh, no, not that one, this one um uh so so on the right you'll definitely recognize that's issue one of gi joe uh herb trimpy uh pencils on the on the left is is like uh some hasbro presentation uh arts which i believe was was used internally in in hasbro to as as a concept art for the for the comic does does this image trigger any memories for for you no larry might know i i I don't remember anything about that. I, I I think this is the first time ever I've ever seen that. Okay. I think nice. it's much more it's much more likely that the the cover came first and that was later. Although they would have had the logo right, wouldn't they? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. This I think this was produced as like a, a sort of a, a marker concept to uh, to kind of help decide what the between some various options on that that first issue. Could be. I don't know. Larry would know for sure. But I, I, I don't like. Like I said, I don't think I've ever seen that before. If, if at one of the meetings I wasn't there, they showed it to Larry and said, "Do something like this." Well, maybe mm -hmm. they did. I don't know. But uh, and I approved the covers. I, I would first they do a sketch. Mm -hmm. I approve it, and or you know change this, move this here, whatever. And then, uh, and then the editor would have the cover executed and. And then before it went out, I, everything that went to the printer, I, I had to sign off on if I was there or, or my designated surrogate would sign off on it. And I usually marked Mark uh, Gronwald or Tom DeFalco. I would have had Archie do it, but he was so busy. And I, I just I couldn't oppress him with any other, anything else. But uh, he would have been, you know, great. And and this uh, that sort of prompts prompts me to actually to, to mention something else that we've we've talked about on our sh show before, which is kind of that um, that cover sketch concept for for approval. Um, so this was like a, a a policy that 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 you had that that you was it you personally had to approve every cover as a sort of sketch concept before it would be um, 
Yeah, and I did most of them. I mean, there were some guys, um, uh, well, Larry, for instance, you know, I mean, I I didn't worry too much about what he was doing. You know, with the editors I trusted the most, I mean, I didn't worry about Louise. Archie, I didn't, I I just, there was nothing I was going to tell Archie. He didn't already know. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, my deal with Goodwin was, I said, you, you run, you do the creative on the uh, creator owned stuff. Okay. And you're not going to hear from me because you know what you're doing. And I'll pave the road. I'll take care of all the crap you don't want to deal with because I'm doing it anyway for the rest of the comics, you know, legal, technical, financial. Archie, he didn't like that dealing with bureaucrats. I mean, if he was talking to a licensing person or a bean counter or a lawyer, his eyes would glaze over. He just, you know, couldn't wait to get out of there. And so I did that because I was doing it for the comics anyway. I said, so I, I tried to make his life easier. And boy, he did brilliant creative. I never had to worry about what anything Archie did. He, like I said, he, he was, he knew what he was doing. He, he was the best ever, I think. You know, it's so, so, the, but yeah, the, the younger guys, the new people, you know, yeah, I, I got involved more, you know, when the, the new people came in. Um, but uh, usually they learn pretty quick. You know, Carl Potts, he didn't know everything the day he walked in the door, but pretty soon he's teaching people. So, yeah. And Larry, Larry's spoken about before about almost like this little industry that he've, he'd, he'd have uh, where, you know, in his lunch break, everyone would be coming into him to, to ask him for a uh, sketch for their, their cover, which he'd, you know, work, work up. And, and he thinks that there must have been thousands of Marvel covers that were based on one of his sketches. Yeah. And, and, and some, and some based on mine, because some editors like uh, were, were artists like Bob Budiansky you know, he was also an artist and Archie was an artist in, in, in his, he did little cartoon stuff, but he, he, he could draw and he, and it had a tremendous visual sense. And Larry, of course, and uh, Carl Potts, but there were some like uh, Denny, Denny to him, the art was some nuisance you had to deal with. <laughs> um, and, and so he wasn't really good with that stuff. So I made sure there were lots of resources. And so, Number one, my art director, the art director who works for 26-year-old me, is John Romita Sr., Hall of Fame, all-time great, you know, uh, holy cow. I mean, that, that guy works for me? Yeah, well, he was doing what he wanted to do. He certainly didn't want to do what I was doing. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but so anyway, but, but he was there. This, this, this is John Romita. He's there. He's a, he's a resource. Go to him. And uh, some people would. Uh, some people uh, would uh, uh, go to... Uh, um, these other guys like Larry a lot because he was really good at that, and uh, and also uh, Bobby Dancy and, and and other people, and uh, and people like Louise. I mean, this, I I don't know if Louise draws at all really, but she had a great art sense, and she also was married to Walt Simonson. You know, <laughs> so over the dinner table, what do you think we should do with this? I don't know, but uh, uh, you know, I mean, so so we I, I tried to make it, you know, not too rigid you know, try to keep it a little free form. So you could, before I took over as editor in chief, the editor in chief, whoever it was, I don't know about Roy, uh, but uh, I I think it's true with Roy, Uh, Len, Marv, uh, Jerry for three weeks and uh, not Archie because he he could do it. But all of them uh, were were pretty good creative people, you know, and and had some kind of good cover sense, especially Archie. So uh, what each editor-in-chief would do, including Archie, 
uh, was um, once a week, they'd have a sit down with uh, either John Romita or Gil Kane or uh, Dave Cockrum, usually, occasionally with other guys. But those were the three main ones. And they would design all the covers for the books, for that week's books. The books that were going to come out some some weeks after, but the week week by week they did it. And so I don't care who you are, even if you're Goodwin, and you're creating fifty to sixty covers a month. You know, sometimes a certain sameness creeps in. You know, um, I mean, Len, for instance, I it was always like two big figures fighting. You know, and not even your Uru Hammer can stop so and so. And and uh, and the same with Mark. I mean, he, they all had their their things they fall into and i would have too but i said no i'm gonna let every editor design their own covers any way they want o'neill just could turn it over you <laughs> or you know larry could do it for you or john ramita or you do it your way and and they did and so and i'd approve it all i mean make sure you know made some kind of sense but but uh, uh that way we had a tremendous variety larry's covers didn't look anything like louise's and and um, they they were all everybody was different. I thought that was a good thing. I mean, the Marvel trade dress said it's Marvel, doesn't have to look like uh, John Buscema drew it. Just as a uh, an add on here, and this is as much for Mark as you, Jim. Um, uh, I saw a uh, John Romita Senior pencil sketch for an Incredible Hulk cover uh, from 1994 mm. uh, that was online uh, a week ago, and I was I was struck that. Romita was doing uh, cover sketches that late. To me, that feels like sort of later than I thought he still was. Oh, I didn't know about that, but yes, but that was that was what when I was there. That that he would do that all the time. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, and if he was busy, they go see Larry. <laughs> and what what was the what was the sort of the dynamic, the feel of the Marvel office at, at that 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 period? You know, who was. You know, you'd had the off different offices, but who was who was there with the doors open? Did everyone? Well, my door, my door was always open, and people would just walk in. I mean, uh, I think one of my first birthdays, um, they all got together and they bought me one of those bubble gum machines with the glass. Uh-huh. It was made to sit on a desk. I thought that's really cool, you know. And and so I thought, well, what am I going to put in there? I mean, I don't think people want gumballs. Um, so I, I just, I discovered it worked with jelly beans, you know, you turn the crank and handful of jelly beans comes out. And so I, um, I, I bought big bags of different jelly beans and I kept it stocked and I I made it so you didn't have to put money in or anything. Uh, there was a switch you could turn. And so, uh, so I had the, that on my desk. And so all day i'm working and people walk in and they're getting jelly beans and leaving you know and uh and goodwin archie goodwin he he sees that he says that's a good idea because everybody comes and sees you you know so he wanted to do something different so he had a big um jar thing and uh and he filled it with all kinds of like those small candies um and the different kinds you know so you want jelly beans to come to me you want you know variety you go to archie and so, uh, uh, you know, we had a, lot of, a steady parade of, of people, and it was kind of nice actually to keep in touch. But the funny thing was, I mean, one time I'm having a meeting with the, uh, um, I think it was the Germans, international licensees, and so we're talking, and they're sitting on the couch across from my desk. There were a couple of uh, side chairs, and then there was a, the nice big couch. 
And uh, so they're sitting on the couch and uh, and we're talking and in strolls, I think it was Elliot Brown. He just like walks right through the meeting, <laughs> gets his jelly beans, walks out. And they're looking at me like, it's a comic book company, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to be weird. So, uh, but that was, that happened more than once. And, uh, but that was funny. Um, uh, people just strolling. It was, it was, that was fine. I always kept my door unlocked at night too. If somebody was working late, needed to take a little nap. I had this really nice couch. Uh, <laughs> and no matter, uh, Dave Sim said, oh, it got cold there at night. No, it didn't. We controlled our own HVAC and, you know, it was, it was nice and warm all the time. So, uh, but they, we, we, uh, you know, we, we, it was a very, it was a happy place. Mostly it got a little cranky toward the end there because we we're being sold down the river and programs keep getting canceled and what pension plans gone or all this stuff uh, that, that became a very stressful time. And, um, but so early on trying to write the ship and get things on time. And so guys who had lived in anarchy are now being told, no, you have to have that in Thursday or I'm going to give it to somebody else. And, and they're, so I'm Mussolini, you know, I'm, I'm horrible, but it was life or death. I, it wasn't like I was just doing this arbitrarily. I say, we, we do this or we die. And so we did it. We turned it around. All of a sudden people are making money. They got benefits. It's, they got rights. Uh, there's we're publishing creator owned um the epic line and and so the, for a while there everything was, it was really a very good and happy place and and everybody larry larry who is not one to uh, you know re reveal personal things or his emotions or whatever he uh we we're sitting at a convention somewhere waiting for somebody and we're just hanging around I started talking about the old days and larry said to me uh, just you know spontaneous he said he said i could not wait to get to work every day that's an unusual thing for Larry to say. I said, but I, I said, I know exactly how you feel. And I think a lot of people felt that way. And uh, every place that size is going to have a few cranky people or bad apples. But but uh, well, we had the minimum. And, I mean, what's what strikes me as well is what what a young guy you were, would have been to have such a significant role, you know, sort of, I, I can only imagine you know me taking on something like that thinking oh no I'm, I'm you know i'm still too young i don't have enough experience to deal with this you know in my late age um, yeah, well, well, how, did that, point, how did that feel well i was 26 years old but i've been working actively in big time comics for 13 years so i wasn't a pup you know and um second uh stan recommended me to the president the president hired me and i reported to the president stan really didn't have anything to do with the comics anymore. He was working entirely on media entertainment stuff. Uh, but he's still Stan and he has the president's ear and, 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 and everything. So, so I did, I'd done, uh, some work with him on the newspaper strip, the Spider-Man newspaper strip. He started out with, uh, Len Wein writing stories and then he would write the dialogue and John Romita would do the art. I kind of didn't like Len's stuff. And so he let him go, not from the company, from the strip. So then Stan's trying to find a new writer and everybody's afraid because they don't want to be fired by Stan and, you know, and be embarrassed. So he asks a lot of people and finally asks me and I say, yeah, I'll do it, you know? And, uh, and so I, I did a, a story for him and I, I take it to him and he, he's, he's, he read, he's reading it. Like he looks like he has a headache. He's like, mm -hmm. this. 
and 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 he's reading it and 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 gets done he says this is good i said <laughs> yeah i said yeah i know and he said no really it's good i said yes stan i know i know what i'm doing and and so uh he's it, actually the word is that word is why is it good <laughs> <laughs> but uh anyway uh so we got along and, and, and the first couple i just wrote and john had some trouble interpreting what i said i guess i i mean he he the problem was that john was drawing it like a romance strip and stan wanted romance and adventure and 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 so john would give you a lot of close-ups of the pretty girl's face when what stan wanted to see was her dancing you know so anyway i started doing a little stick figure layouts for John. And at first he was not happy. He said, I don't need some kid, you know, doing layouts for me. And I said, John, it's not that it's not to show you, you know, how to draw. I, I said, I'm just letting you know what's happening. Do it your way, you know? And so, but Stan, Stan would, uh, he liked my, my layouts and, and, um, and after, you know, John, John is such a nice guy. He can't be mad at anybody for more than about 10 seconds. So he, he, he got over it pretty quick and and actually that it he actually liked it because it made it a little easier for him and if you know um if i did something and he chose to change the angle or whatever it's, he's he's john Romita. let him go you know <laughs> leave him alone but uh so we i worked with stan anyway because i was working with stan on the newspaper strip while i was just the editor uh he's got the sense that i may, maybe knew what i was doing and and he recommended me as the president of the company uh, and the president of the company, when he hired me, he he thought we were on our way out. He thought that I was going to I was running a unit that was going to be gone pretty soon. And then, you know, it was like, you know, it almost didn't matter who was there. You know, mm. uh, the last thing on earth he expected was that we would turn it around and, and it would become it was the only uh, uh, part of the company that was making money. I mean, the other, you know, licensing, eh, you know, uh, not much. And, and, uh, so we were, you know, uh, carrying everybody. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and, and to his surprise, um, and, and so I don't think he was like taking any big gamble. He thought, he thought the game was lost. Put, put the, put the backup quarterback in this game's over, you know, Jim, I think many Marvel fans and fans of eighties, Marvel, think of Marvel comics almost as if it existed in isolation and it was owned by Cadence, yes. Cadence Industries. Um, can you, just as a refresher, can you tell us what else Cadence owned or was making or doing? Well, Cadence Industries started uh, as a company called uh, Perfect Chemical, Perfect Chemical Plate, something like that. It was, they did photog photographic stuff. And that was back in the late 60s when, when um, in the United States, there was a, almost a fad of, of uh, creating conglomerates, companies buying up unrelated companies and building what they call a conglomerate. I'll give you Litton Industries, for example. But a lot of the big companies like U.S. Steel or whatever, you're buying up things like fast food chains. What's that got to do with steel? You know, anyway. So this little company is trying to do that. And then they bought uh, uh, U.S. Pen and Pencil, uh, Perfect Subscription Company, which is a thing where the kids go around the neighborhood and sell subscriptions for you know, to raise money for the church or something. Um, it, it, they had uh, vitamin quota stores. Um, they, had, they owned a distributor, which was convenient. They owned Curtis Circulation. So that was convenient because they 
did a much better job than independent news had been doing. Uh, they also owned a, 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 a chain of, um, I think it was called the Saks Theaters, chain of theaters in, in Boston, the Boston area. They own some land out in California, near, near LA. Why'd they buy land? Maybe it's an investment. Um, they might have had something else. Uh, I, I don't know, but it was that was sm- a bunch of small, crappy companies, except for Curtis, which was okay. Uh, and they, they, what they would did is they hired these two guys right out of law school, uh, Paul Hinden and Joe Calamari. And the guy who, the guy who was the chairman of the board was was a guy named Shelley Feinberg, who was famous for coming in and saving these distressed situations. Uh, so, uh, so he came in and, and, uh, before I was there and he came in and he got these two guys just out of law school and he started, he started sending them to these companies as hatchet men. They would go in, they would get, get rid of any dead wood and, and get rid of some of the live wood too. I mean, they do every, anything they could to clean it up and make it look more appealing. And there was a way, there's plenty of ways, if you know anything about accounting to sort of inflate your revenues right one way was since marvel was making money with me marvel was paying all the corporate expenses all these other companies didn't contribute at all so it looked like their bottom lines were better than they really were and um uh and so so because marvel was hidden as a division as opposed to a, a, a subsidiary where you have to report your earnings separately where they they could just you know pay all the expenses they wanted out of marvel and we were making the money for it. So, uh, so anyway, these these guys went around, they clean up these companies, and then they sell them off. And uh, the last one, the crown jewel, was Marvel. Curtis is a, they're not a creative company. So companies like Curtis that provide a service are usually sold for receivables. I mean, it's just whatever they're, whatever they're owed at the moment, that's what you, that's how you buy them. And, and so Marvel was the crown jewel. And when they came to us, they were going to milk it for all it was worth. But none of those people had ever looked at a comic book. None of the, the board of directors had no idea. You know, that we turned it around. You think like, hey, it's working now. No, they thought it was like some fad or something. They didn't. They, they couldn't tell a bad comic book from a good one. And I'm trying to explain. No, the, the comics are better now. But they're comics. You know, I mean, they 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 thought all comics were crap. And um, it's so hard dealing with them. That a bad environment. But the, for the people in, in my area, when we were doing really well, they weren't dealing with those jerks. <laughs> I was. And so for them, it just seemed, things seemed good. And they were good for a while. And then uh, uh, they decided to cash in. So This is 1986 when Cadence sells Marvel to New World Pictures. Yeah, the, the deal actually closed in early January 1987. Somehow they falsified the documents or something so they get the tax break in 86. But uh, that year was tough. Cadence had many suitors besides um, uh, New New World Pictures, which changed its name later to New World Entertainment. But uh, one of them was uh, Richard Bernstein, who was uh, supermajority owner of Western Publishing, Golden Books, had printing plants all over the country, um, you know, very, very prosperous company. He wanted to buy Marvel. Uh, and he, t- he actually went, went all the way through the due diligence process 
uh, I happen to know this. Uh, his, uh, I think it was Baker McKenzie was his law firm. And he ended up owing them near $300,000 for doing the legal work, researching, buying Marvel. And of course he had to send in his auditors and pay them a couple hundred thousand bucks. So he's into this for, for um, you know, half a million, wait, yeah, half a million dollars. And he walked away because he said, he said, these people, these executives are terrible <laughs> and they keep wanting a nickel more, a nickel more. He said, enough, goodbye. So he walked, he, he spent all that money and walked away. So fortunately with, with New World, they, they uh, I don't know, they weren't as bright, but they, so they did close the deal. I had a question about sort of more the, the creative side and, and, you know, the, the, the period that you oversaw at Marvel, sort of in, incredible, you know, creative period and, and yeah, sort of a lot of a lot of nostalgia from from people of, of you know the, just some of those books produced that during those uh, uh, during that time. It's it's you know a real a high point to, to to live up to. You know, we still all of these years you know go yeah. go back to a lot of these these books. I had the greatest um, team ever assembled. You can't win with that team. Fire the coach. <laughs> and I was wondering, um, I was wondering specifically around the the Joe book. So you've got you've got there Larry there as the as the writer, but but you you know got the these amazing artists. So so broadly speaking, it was was sort of Trimpy, Vosberg, uh, Wiggum, uh, and then Ron Wagner. What sort of level of involvement did did you have in in sort of finding all of these uh, the the illustrators who right out the back every every time they sort of landed at marvel just seemed to be producing you know the the gold standard quality of art yeah. well herb herb was already there uh, when i came in and uh as i said when i took over well first there weren't any editors i was the only editor and then when i became editor-in-chief i was doing both jobs because I, I couldn't you know i didn't have anybody well i quickly got editors uh and I, the first one i think was um uh, bob hall and Roger Stern, and now I just started building from there. Uh, both Bob and Roger went on to do to be freelancers, but but uh, uh, like I said, I got these great people mostly because the rest of the industry was dying. The only reason I got Louise is because Warren went out of business, and uh, and Archie went all reprint. It's a bad year, 1978. Archie all reprint, Warren out of business, Charlton Comics out of business, uh, Harvey just stopped publishing. Um, yeah, the DC and, and implosion. DC implosion in, in June. And they, they, one day they canceled forty percent of their line. You think there were cartoonists available? <laughs> you bet. I mean, I, I so I got I, I got uh, that's that's why I got Larry because DC went under. And I, when I he came over, I, I said I said, well, you know, what I'm trying to do here, Larry, is you know, want to, you know, good stories, well told, you know, care about it, make it mean something. He said, that's what I wanted to do at D.C., he said, but they wanted um, uh, little, uh, you know, yarns that had, you know, twist endings. And that's all they wanted. And they, they thought comics were read by idiots. I said, not us. I mean, we, we're, we're, we believe in this stuff. He said, me too. So away we went. Same with Louise. I mean, like, you didn't have to, I mean, like I said, I was preaching in the choir for the most part. I mean, everybody was already on the same page. They saw what, what I was trying to do, and they, they liked it. And, uh, and so artists showed up. They didn't have much to do with the ones that Larry picked. 
he could probably tell you those stories. But uh, guys like him, you know, he, he, people would come, you know, hoping to work with him. Same with, uh, like I said, uh, Carl Potts, after a little while, he was teaching people. People uh, were, were eager to work with him. Chris Warner, who's a senior big shot editor at uh, Dark Horse, he was, uh, Carl Potts was helped to train him. So, uh, uh, and he was drawing Alien, Alien Legion. So, so good people started coming out of the woodwork. Also, it didn't hurt that I, I, like I said, I raised the rates. I started putting in benefits. I started playing fair. Uh, it used to be that somebody would, would routinely be asked to, um, oh, can you draw me a little uh, drawing for the, the corner box on the cover? And they were just expected to do that. You know, I said, nobody works for free. Nobody works for free. We pay for everything. You work, we pay. So, Jim, how yeah. much how much does an artist get paid if they draw the corner box spot? In my day, yeah, in my day, probably a hundred dollars or something. Okay, I, I don't remember exactly. I remember uh, that. Uh, also, the logos, those logos, trademark logos. You know how much Marvel was paying for trademark logos when I came in? Twenty two dollars, twenty two bucks. First one I bought, I paid fifteen hundred for, and that was pathetic but it was the best i could do you know it's just why did we we had to make it fair i mean this is uh actually that's a good um that's a good segue if i can um we've been talking about story and character and arts um but there is this element of marvel design so logos um uh layouts which is uh people in the bullpen right like people who were doing corrections and paste up and letterers. Um, can you talk about design and how a Marvel book, I don't mean like cover arts, I mean yeah, I how mean. a book looks to to the audience and to to your to your aesthetics. Well I didn't I, I never told anybody uh write like me or you know design like me or any of it. But we tried to hire good designers and uh, tried to give them a sense of what our our purpose was here. And and uh, and the same with the artists. I want. I, I said, tell a story well. You know, make it clear, clear at a glance. Anyone in the world should be able to look at any panel and know exactly what's going on there. And 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 I discourage the overlapping, interlocking, slanty panel. Don't know which balloon to read next. Didn't outlaw it. I just I just I, I to me it was like you better be pretty darn good if you're going to start playing with the panel borders. That's what Archie used to call it playing with the panel borders and uh you know and so most guys got the drift oh we're, we're gonna do you know straightforward storytelling i didn't say you know it has to look like this or i like this style or draw like chubby sema stan used to do he used to say draw like kirby and so herb did herb trimpy you know and uh some other guys tried to do it too and i i would never do that and that's i think that was a mistake on stan's part but so what I found was that if you just get them to understand the mission, which were good story, well told, make it clear, clear at a glance, uh, each guy will do it in his own way, you know? Uh, and, uh, and then sometimes people who had earned their spurs, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz and uh, Claremont wanted him to do the act, uh, new act, new mutants. And, um, and, and he, they came to me and Bill said, but I want to do it all experimental. Because he was, he had been great. He did. He started out drawing like Neil Adams 
on the Moon Knight stuff, he he developed his own styles, all straightforward, very clear, very nice. And and he, but now he wanted to do some, you know, kind of crazier stuff. He wanted to try things. I thought, hmm, all right, Bill's a genius, you know. Um, all right, we're Marvel Comics. If we can't experiment, who can? Nobody. So go ahead, Bill, swing for the fences. You'll never hear from me about, you know, uh, oh, you could have told this clearer, you know. I said, I said, just, just, you know, rock the world. Go ahead. And so he did. He did some pretty weird stuff on uh, New Mutants. But, you know, and, and the newsstand sales actually went down because get a lot of young readers on the newsstand and they just couldn't figure it out. You know, like it's just hard to read. Us guys, we have the patience to sit there and figure it out because it's beautiful and we want to know. And, and, and so with the direct market, sales skyrocket. And uh, I thought, it's a good experiment. You know, I, would, I wouldn't want everybody drawing drawing this way. It's very sort of Esteban Moroto, you know. But, um, uh, but you know, I, I, when a guy earned, earned the right to do it, uh, we encourage experimentation. Um, Larry earned the right to do a silent issue long before he met me. And, uh, and he did a brilliant job. And, and you know, I was, I was, it's really funny. It's like... Uh, it was there was no house style. I never told anybody anything but philosophy, and and yet people embraced it, and and they found all different ways to do what I was asking them to do. And so you know, Louise's books didn't look like you know uh, Larry's, and Larry's didn't look like uh, Budiansky's, but they all look good. And there was always uh, story and storytelling was um, given you know, uh, uh, primary importance. We sometimes talk about the clarity of the, the storytelling in, in G.I. Joe from, from Larry and that uh, any issue could be someone's first. And no, I see that all the time. And the, like, the, the, just the, the subtle ways of introducing the characters so that you know exactly who they are. Stan always did it gracefully, and people would complain, "Oh, you want us to tell you know all about each character every every issue?" And I said, "I said I didn't tell you to do it badly." No. <laughs> I said, "I said you can do it gracefully." It was Stan. It was just seamlessly in there, and by page four, you know who everybody is, but he you don't ever feel like he had something explained to you. It's just you see it in the action, and uh, so some guys struggle with it, but most guys figured out what I was talking about, and. Um, I mean, I never liked those those dumb little things. When when the when the comics were kind of chaotic, Stan, I guess, told Roy put a little thing at the top of every splash page that explains who the character is because nobody's doing it in the book. And so they had those dumb banners at the top, you know. Uh, at least at least Roy's were well written, you know, uh, or he took swiped them from Howard or something. But uh, you know, I, I thought those were ridiculous and and and. A good, you know, if, if you if you can't tell what's going on, get a better writer or teach this one. But uh, you should be able. It should, it should be effortless. Anybody, the first issue that they should, they don't need to know everything about Spider Man. If the story takes place at the Daily Bugle or or something, don't mention Aunt May. Okay, if it takes place at, at the Peter Parker's house, yeah, you have to mention Aunt May. Don't mention Jameson. Don't bother. You don't need it. Tell them what they need to know for this story. And uh, and a lot of times you can, you know, lay it between the lines and people can figure it out. 
And so, uh, uh, and pictures, if the artist's doing his job, sometimes they can figure a lot of it out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I had a couple of more specific GI Joe questions and, sure. and then I think I'm done with the, the GI Joe stuff, but, um, do you remember the, the circumstances around the creation of the additional GI Joe book special missions as like the, um, uh, secondary GI Joe book that, that ran for, uh, Tim, how, how many issues? Yeah. Yeah. But, but it was doing so well. 28 issues. It was doing so well. Um, GI Joe was doing so well. Uh, we, we tried to figure out, you know, what else we could do. And, uh, uh, Larry came up with all that stuff. Um, uh, nobody, no command from upstairs, nothing like that. Uh, <clears throat> I used to get every once in a while, uh, someone would talk to Galton and explain to him the X-Men was a good selling book, best selling book. And, and, and so, uh, I'd get not, not never from him, but, but from the people that were talking to him, I get calls from circulation or, or, uh, finance. And they'd say, well, why don't we do like more X-Men books? I'd say, because that's not what you do. You don't, you, you don't dilute a franchise that's working. And, and, and we're, we don't have other Claremonts and, and, uh, John Burns lying around, you know, waiting for an X-Men book. I said, I said, what, what we do is we, we try to make the Avengers better, try to make Spider-Man better, try to, try to make all the books like the X-Men, not like the X-Men, but as, as successful. And, um, and I always won that fight, except when, Claremont comes and he says, I want to do the new mutants, you know, like a, like a young kid's X-Men. So I'm getting pressure <laughs> from both sides here. And I, I finally, I, I said, all right, if you can handle it, sure. And, uh, and then next thing you know, where the, the, somebody, uh, proposes X factor and the same deal, I'm getting pressure from upstairs and pressure from downstairs. And I, I said, all right, X factor, here we go. Um, it made sense. It was some of the X characters who were, like not being actively used at that time. And the same thing with Larry. I mean, he, he'd come up with uh, ideas and um, the book, book was doing so well. Same thing with the Marvel Universe Handbook. We did the Marvel Universe Handbook. It was such a success. You always know it's a success because a year later, DC does it. They, <laughs> they, they did uh, who's who. Um, but anyway, it was such a success that the first thing was planned to be 12 issues. And we ended up ha having to do a 13th issue of the Book of the Dead, you know. And then uh, we did a deluxe edition. It was more expanded. And then, then we had to do uh, updates every year. And it was its own little industry there. And Gruenwald loved it. He just he, he just loved doing that. And, and so, you know, if a Gruenwald or a Larry or somebody like that wanted to, you know, do related items, all right, I consider that. Yeah. No, it it's, makes a lot of, lot of sense if... If uh, if it's you know top of the subscription chart or whatever, then then if if Alary wants to do one more, sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And yeah. and the the point about the X Men is sort of really resonating as well because for me as an X Men reader, sort of the the clarity of that single story that that Chris Claremont was was telling at that time um, was really compelling, and that just the the later X Men with the, the the deluge of 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 books that that followed beyond just the ones you're talking about yeah there were 14 at one time 14 x-men related books after me as a contrast can i jump in uh jim by the time you came in there was a second spider-man book 
Yeah, there was, and they also there was Marvel Tales, which reprints of the early ones. Um, yeah, that's that was Roy, and uh, uh, I don't know. I guess I guess Spider Man was selling better than anything else. Uh, in, in the early seventies, the books weren't doing too bad. It was in that little mid seventies range. There it was seventy four, seventy five, seventy six, and even seventy seven until we turned it around. That was when things were bad. But but I guess back when when he did that, Spider Man was selling well, and he thought, well, why don't we do this other one? Spectacular Spider Man uh, was uh, the two that were under Roy. I think was Spider Man and Team Up. Spectacular Spider Man was created as make work for Jerry Conway. Jerry was uh, uh, Marv was fired, and as editor in chief, and Roy was going to come back. And at the last minute, he changed his mind, decided he was going to move to California, try to get in, into the film biz. And so uh, Stan remembered um, he he didn't run the comics; it wasn't his call. But but he remembered that he had once, when he was running the comics, promised that if Roy ever left, Jerry could be the editor in chief. And he didn't he didn't get that because, like I say, a it wasn't Stan's call anymore. But um, uh, instead. Um, Marvin Lynn convinced uh, uh, somebody, Stan, to recommend one one of them to the president. And Lynn lasted a while, eight months, I think. Marv lasted a year. And so, like I said, they were going to bring Roy back. He changed his mind at the last minute. So Stan remembered, ah, we owe one to Jerry Conway. And so he talked to Golden, and they hired him. And and he came in uh, like a day later and because he was working at D.C. at the time. So, but he only lasted about three, three weeks, I think, maybe a little more, but, but that's about it. And, uh, so he, he decided he couldn't stand it. It was chaos and it was hard to deal with. And so, um, he was pretty smart though. And he, he, he knew as I knew, got to get these books on time. Got to, you know, he had a different way of going about it than I did. But, um, anyway, so, so, uh, so, so Jerry leaves quickly. And they, uh, I guess uh, Archie was the editor of Black and White, so I guess they um, figured it's just promote him. And they did, but when Jerry left, he left as a, a contract writer, writer editor, and he was he had made a contract for eight books a month. I don't know anybody who could write eight books a month except Stan, who did ten or more a month for 10 years running. So Jerry had all this work to do and, you know, it was more than he could handle. And, uh, uh, but there weren't actually enough books to give him that. And so they, they actually, uh, Archie had to kick guys off of books to give to Jerry and, uh, and create, created spectacular Spider-Man to give to Jerry. So anyway, uh, the, a lot of the writers were disgruntled because uh, Claremont lost something, Mantlo lost something, Mensch lost something, and um, Jerry's so clever. He get, he got wind that they were they were forming sort of a citizens' village vigilance committee to <laughs> do something. So he goes in and he somehow convinces them. Oh, yeah, that's right. We sh- we I want to join the citizens' vi- vigilance committee, and, and he actually went into Stan's office with them. Like I said, stand in authority, but he's still stand, you know. So, uh, so they, so now, like Jerry 
weasels his way into the guys who were complaining about essentially him. And uh, and so uh, Stan said he'd see what he could do. And, and uh, so Archie proposed, why don't we do, you know, like Classics Illustrate, you know, make work. And, and so uh, Galton approved that. And so there were those awful Marvel classics that were make work. I think Mench did one. I think Claremont did one. They were awful. And they're not because of those, those guys. It's just because nobody wanted them. And um, uh, so, so anyway, that, that was why Spectacular Spider-Man was created. And I don't know what else. But uh, uh, then there were a couple of the books that were created around that time that were, um, you know, protect the trademark books. Spider-Woman, uh, She-Hulk, you know, things like that. You, They didn't want somebody else to come out with a female Hulk or a female spider so, uh, but that's how things were done there. When I came in, we didn't have so much of that. We didn't have to. And th- this is this is my sort of final GI Joe sort of related question. Sure. I wanted to, I'm to sort of ask straight away from GI Joe. I'm sorry. That's that's all right. That's all right. This is <laughs> this is all this is all gold. So uh, I'm happy to <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. But just anecdotally, it feels like um, for for a lot of comic readers. Um, G.I. Joe was quite a gateway drug, I guess, because of the appeal of the toy, all of that advertising. You know, G.I. Joe was the, the the comic that got a lot of people reading comics, collecting comics, going into comic shops. Tim, Tim there, me. Um, what What's your sense of that sort of factor around the comic and, and sort of seeing it all these years later? And sort of the second part of that conversation is... is um, do you see like a, a disproportionate amount of people coming up to you at conventions with a, a GI Joe book or a GI Joe question? Well, I'll tell you what, if Larry's there, everybody comes up with a GI Joe book or something that they've already had signed by Larry. And that works for just about anything. If, uh, you know, uh, Bob Hall's there, I see a lot of Avengers, you know, um, uh, and if, if Zachary Beatty are there, everybody has a secret wars. But uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is I, I, I learned my, my, a lot of my basic training was with Mort Weisinger and, um, Mort, uh, spent a lot of time teaching me stuff that didn't directly relate. It seemed like I was a writer. I did layouts. I designed covers for him, but I mean, he would, I'd go to New York and visit the office. I lived in Pittsburgh and, um, and he, he, each time I was there, he'd sit me down with somebody, maybe more than, you know, maybe several times. Um, like uh, to to learn more about in-house production. Jack Jack Adler's teaching me in-house production. I'm thinking, why do I need to know in-house production? Uh, but you don't say no to more, you know. And so, and Jack Jack Adler taught me a lot about printing production. And um, Tatiana Wood taught me about coloring. And uh, I think it was George Klein that uh, explained a lot of stuff about inking to me. And and then meanwhile, Mortis teaching me about the business of the business about the marketing and licensing and, and the merchandising and, and international and uh, uh, also the finance explaining about the unit costs and, and how they vary with the print order and, and uh, just, just, just everything uh, to do with the business of the business to the point that when I took my, when, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I, everybody had to take a class called economics. Uh, Mr. Blackburn, never forget him. Anyway, uh, uh, so we come in on the first day. My my group, my my uh, fellow seniors, come in on the first day, and he says, "Today you're going to take my final exam." 
And everybody said, what? On the first day, we're taking a test. And, and we all took his final exam on the first day. And he, he's just trying to find out what we didn't know, right? I got it, 100%. I got it all, <laughs> thanks to Mort, you know? And uh, so the next day, he calls me up to his desk. He said, well, you passed my final exam. You don't have to come to this class. Here's a permanent. <laughs> he gave me a permanent hall pass. So I go to study hall, you know, do other people's homework. And uh, so he, it was he was effective that way. And, and so all that stuff came in real. It didn't work work out that I ended up at D.C. Because his, his assistant, I asked his assistant, what's going on here? He said, he's training you to have a job like his. I'm like, why? And he's always yelling at me. Um, but that all came in real handy at Marvel, you know, to be able to discuss uh, things with him. Now, when Mort taught me about marketing and stuff, um, he made it clear to me about, you know, how you, you need to get people's attention. That's why he was so interested in the covers and, and, and also in, in events that people uh, might, uh, might catch your eye. All right. So, and then I saw how well Star Wars did and I thought, yeah, you're right. Gateway drug. Because uh, when, when we had the chance to do GI Joe, I'm thinking every kid and almost everybody in this country is going to know who gi joe is and there are people walking past comic book racks every day and they don't know who daredevil is and they don't care you know ghost rider what who cares but if they see gi joe their eyes go away okay and they, they 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 buy issue 13 and they like it well then maybe they come back to their rack and maybe they try spider-man or maybe they try superman I didn't care, you know, just trying to build markets, save this dying industry. And and so uh, it had worked so well. So many people tell me, G I started with G.I. Joe or Secret Wars or Star Wars. And so I thought, well, that's what we do. We need somebody, something that's an eyeball catcher. And then if they like it, well, first of all, if the guy buys issue number 13 of G.I. Joe and he likes it, he'll find a comic shop. Oh, trust me. He'll find, I would have when I was a kid. I I'd want those first 12. You know, I, I like this. I'm where, where can I get back issues? Hmm. Look it up in yellow pages. Uh, but uh, um, the the thing is like, uh, yeah, that, it really worked well with, with any of the big, it had to be a super movie. It had to be a super toy, but that really worked well or a super event like Secret Wars has sold millions. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, it was not just, you know, dumb luck. It was, it was, uh, I, I was aware of it. It was sort of, wasn't like I planned and set out to do it and went and got GI Joe, but when it started to happen, I said, "Ah, this is this is great. This is gonna this is gonna be wonderful. People are gonna love this stuff." And that's that, that. And we had we had Larry, and um, he put together the A team, and lo and behold, you know, uh, it turned out to be a huge success. So, all right, that was my theory. Jim, we've done some episodes where. Um, people show art, uh, original art they own or convention sketches that they've had commissioned. Uh, I see over your shoulder a Jack Kirby drawing of Captain America and the Red Skull. Could you tell us about two or three pieces of original art in your collection that are particularly meaningful to you? Well, I don't have much uh, in my collection. I, I, uh, when I came in as a, as a, at Marvel as editor, uh, Roy had set up, Roy Thomas had set up the artwork return system 
he he got that going about the same time that DC did. But Roy was a writer, and he he thought that the writer should get pages. So some went to the pencilers, some went to the inker, and two pages each issue went to the writer. And I always felt that doesn't sound right. So when I got my two pages for writing a story, I get one to the penciler and one to the inker, and uh, they were pleased. And I changed that when I came in. I changed that system so that the the two people who did the art, the penciler and the anchor, got all the pages. Some of the writers were a little little peeved, but I, I remember telling uh, I don't know, Claremont maybe, uh, or maybe it was Bill Manlow. I don't know. Anyway, I, I remember having a conversation where I, I said, "You're now making well more than double per page than you used to, and you have benefits." And I said. This this is a wrong thing here. The artists should have the art. And so you're way better off. And because they're saying, well, you're hurting my income. I sell those pages. You're making more money than ever, you know, and let's let's have justice served. here. So they grumbled about it for a little while and they got over it. But all the artists were very happy. And um, uh, so I, I don't have much in the way of original art. That that piece was given to me by Jack Kirby. Actually, uh, he did it at San Diego. Uh, I, I bought it and gave it back to him for reasons too long to explain. And he gave it back to me <laughs> and it's inscribed at the bottom. You see, you can see probably his, his signature in, uh, in ink under that, you know, you know, like a ballpoint pen, it says, um, uh, to Jim, a good friend. So that is a very important thing to me. You know, that's, that's surprise possession. I have a painting by Bill Sienkiewicz that he, uh, it was a birthday present. He gave it to me. It's uh, it's me from here down. <laughs> from there down. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I said Bill because he said it was a well, for your birthday. I can do your portrait. I said, oh, great. <laughs> and I said Bill. He said that's what I see when I look at you. It's beautiful <laughs> though, and I have it hanging in my dining room. And I tell you what, I don't even have to tell people this story. Uh, just, they walk in and they start laughing. Just in case people are listening to this podcast and not watching the video version, Jim has his hand at his neck. Jim, <laughs> Jim Shooter is tall, and so this is a portrait of Jim Shooter from the neck down. Um, Jim, is this uh, what? What? What are the colors? Is this in Sienkiewicz's more painterly style? What does it look like? Is it? It's, it's in his painterly style. It's 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 sort of me with my hand in my pocket. I'm wearing a sport coat, and I have a tie on. I used to wear a tie at Marvel. Because I would often be called into meetings, occasionally with the board, or occasionally uh, with you know executives, or 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 executives from other countries, you know, or or toy partners or something. And so I wanted to look, you know, respectable. And um, so he painted he painted uh, that, and he painted it well. And it's beautiful. And like I said, it hangs in my my dining room. And uh, people walk in, they get the joke right away. And uh, so that's that's so they always used to do giant gym jokes. They get more giant gym jokes around there than, than you can believe. Like on Marvel Age, always you know, always giant gym. Yeah, and then I have a couple other pages. Don Perlin gave me a couple pages, and that's nice. Um, uh, David Lapham gave me a beautiful page from uh, the Unity issue, one of the Unity issues of uh, Shadow Man. I wrote the Unity issues, and. Uh, uh, a few others, just a few. Is there anything um, outside of comics in fine art illustration or children's book illustration, newspaper strips? Yeah, I have a um, a, a, a Nancy strip uh, that was given to me by uh, 
Guy Gilchrist, and that's Fran, and uh, that's that's beautiful. He did that for years. I also have a a, a painting. It's not really a painting. It's a I think it's done in pastels, but it's full color, and it's of a um, a ballerina uh, sitting on uh, uh, like after the workout, you know, kind of sitting, you know, on on a, 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 a counter or something. It's by Joe Rubenstein, and it's gorgeous. It's just it's just gorgeous. I, I uh, Joe gave me that, and uh, he said, "I want you to have this." I said, "Wow, wow, you sure? I mean, holy cow!" And so that I have that in the living room, and um, uh, that's just that's just great. I, I uh, uh, Joe, people don't know this about Joe. Joe Joe's a very good painter, very good portrait artist. He uh, he actually uh, he, he studied portrait art. And, uh, and he had, uh, there was a contest, I think a nationwide contest for, for uh, portraits. And uh, uh, he finished in the top 10. He, he didn't, wasn't first, second or third, but he was in the top 10, got an honorable mention, did a beautiful job. I mean, the guy's very talented and uh, 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 amazingly uh, uh, good at the likenesses and portraits. This is the artist that, that I guess listeners will, best knows the the inca of the likes of wolverine um, the wolverine miniseries he inked and uh, he inked a lot of stuff i mean so much stuff he was he was a, a go-to guy for a long time so we've been we've been talking quite a long time and, and uh, taking up a, a lot of your time so i don't want to uh, monopolize uh monopolize your time too much um but yeah so so tim was there any sort of final score questions from from you no, this has been wonderful. I'm oh, out of questions. You. Thanks. Yeah. Well, if you ever, you know, if you guys just want to talk to me or if you ever want to do this again, anytime. It was fun. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, my only other questions would be just more self-indulgent sort of uh, sort of curiosity questions about, um, for example, you know, with Marvel being the cultural phenomenon that it is uh, now particularly with the cinematic universe and all of the shows on disney plus and stuff as a as sort of an outsider all of these uh you know years later what what how you know looking looking at kind of what it's become um what do what do you make of it all well i'll tell you what when like i said when galton hired me he said this the, the comics are gonna die it's over and i said you're so wrong and um uh the the uh Part of the reason I said that is because I always thought, you know, that, that there could be good movies about uh, co comic book characters and so forth. And Star Wars proved me right. I thought, boy, if they can do that with space opera and they turn their uh, attention to comics, it, wow, holy cow. So uh, so I said, I we know this, this is going to happen. And he didn't think so. And uh, so anyway, that year, my first year as editor-in-chief, that's when the Superman movie came out, the first one with Christopher Reeve. Mm, right. And it got good reviews. You remember, I, don't, I don't know if you remember the motto, you'll believe a man can fly, right? Um, got good reviews, playing to packed houses, big hit, okay? And so I said, this is it. This is the watershed. Here we go. And so uh, I took, I, I told everybody, I said, I said, no, you guys straggling sometimes. I said, but tomorrow be here at nine. I said, we're going to the movies. And and I took everybody, 30 some people, and walked across town. And the only show you get into is the early morning show. That's why they had to be there and get them those movies at the 10 o'clock show, or you couldn't get in. And so 
So I got him there, bought, bought everybody's tickets, bought them all popcorn. And I said, we have to watch this. This is, this is a watershed. This is a, a, a big thing in the history of our industry. And, and uh, we should see it. And, and uh, you know, and, rem and remember this moment, right? So but we did. And we watched it. And it was pretty good. You know, I mean, I could quibble with things here and there. But I, I thought, no, this is, it, it's, you know, it's not some silly thing. It's a, it's a real movie. And um, so we're trooping back across town, or we come into the office, and Stan's office was still at 575 Madison then, even though he didn't really, didn't, wasn't involved with the comics. He was, uh, anyway, so he sees us all trooping down the hall, and he comes out, and he's looking at that. <laughs> He says, he says to me, he says, where were you? And I said, I took everybody to see Superman. And he said, and you didn't ask me? <laughs> he was like a kid. He was like so, you know, upset. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Stan. I didn't think of it. I said, but uh, he said, I should have done it. I said, next time, let's do it together. You know? So um, anyway, wait, wait. <laughs> But I knew that was a significant moment, and I knew that the technology would keep evolving, and that were that this was going to happen. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe was destined to happen, and it has. And the Marvel movies, at least, are really—I mean, almost all of them—really pretty good. Only those crappy Fantastic Four ones. Uh, I think they're produced by Fox. I don't know, but they—they—they they, they were substandard. Uh, but uh, my favorite is Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, uh, I loved it. That was great. I guess I do have a question uh, sure. now that I've put myself on the spot to come up with one more question. Um, Jim, so much of your work has been um, collected in paperback, graphic novel form, Marvel, DC, Valiant. Do you have a shelf or shelves in your home of your work? I, I have a bunch of bookcases full of this stuff. And I'm not, I probably, you know, dumb for doing this. I mean, I, I dig them out and refer to them once in a while and probably have destroyed any value they might have. But, um, you know, I, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm just trying to, uh, I, I, I do keep as much as I can. Over the years, I've given so much away. People come, they have a kid here, here's a comic book, you know, uh, that I don't have a complete collection by a long shot, but, um, I've got a lot of stuff and it, it's, you know, I, I carry it around with me to conventions. I have these big presentation books and my show and tell, you know, and, and some, there's some comics and also old letters and memos and photos and stuff. People leaf through it and then they say, well, what's this? And I tell them the story. Oh, this will crack you up. Uh, Mark. Um, you were rattling off names of uh, people at uh, Marvel UK before, I believe. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was at a convention in London, I think two years ago, uh, or maybe it's 2019. I don't know. Anyway, I was at a convention in London, huge, huge convention, gigantic convention hall. And I had a table, a couple tables, I'm sitting across the uh, aisle from this guy. He's looking at me. And so he comes <laughs> over and he says, you're Jim Shooter. And I said, yeah. And, and he says, he says, he says, I used to work at Marvel UK and you used to come over and do all these training sessions with us. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I, I, I said, you look a little different now. I'm, uh, <laughs> like, I'm not sure who you are. And he told me, and right now I cannot think of his name, but he told me, and he's a successful writer and artist. And he, he, he said, he's, you know, he said, 
one time we had a group picture taken. And I said, yeah, here it is. And showed him in the show and tell book. <laughs> he said, that's me. That's me. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, that's what my show and tell is. It's 58 years in the comic book business, all kinds of stuff, crazy stuff. But you've been, you've been getting back out into the cons, haven't you? Yeah, I I, uh, I did, I, I don't know, 25 or 6 last year. And, wow. Uh, that's too many. And and so I'm cutting down a little bit this year. Uh, I, I, I'd rather just stay home and do my, my writing. Not because of the cons. I love the cons. It's the travel. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's awful. And so, uh, I mean, I'm, once I'm there, I'm happy as a clam. But, you know, <laughs> you're going to get there. And sometimes you have to change planes. And last year was the worst year ever for uh, delayed flights, canceled flights. It's the only time I've ever missed a, uh, mm. two connections. I've never, oh. never missed one before. So it's, you know, like I said, I'm going to, I'm 71 years old. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to slow down a little bit, you know. Just, uh, I think you're allowed to. You know, I don't feel like uh, running any marathons right now. Yeah, well, I mean, 25 Cons in a in a year. That's that is a marathon. That is yeah. yeah, yeah. That is one every other week, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, and that, that that doesn't work out that way. You'll have several weeks off, and then you have six in a row. Right. You know. It's once I get there, I'm having fun, and it, I, I see people I didn't get to I haven't seen for years. People I used to work with, and you know, all kinds of people turn up, and it's a great time. I just. Uh, you know, I just wish I could, you know, teleport. <laughs> Absolutely. It yeah. would, uh, yeah, because, yeah, it must must be you're going to uh, to all sort of all corners of uh, the, the country. And probably did you did you travel internationally as well? I was in uh, Canada. That was the only international. I was invited to Dubai. And wow. I, I just like 20 hours in the air. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. All right. So I, I, I gave that a miss. Um, I was supposed to go to Spain this year, but I'm, I, I'm, I, I can't go. I got too much going on here. But and I've been to Mexico and here and there, but uh, uh, mm. and I have been to Spain. I did the Salon of Comicos, Salon de Comicos in Spain, mm. Barcelona. They, yeah, they take they take their comics seriously over. Oh yeah, yeah, they, Europe. <laughs> yeah, they uh, and they they pull no punches. They ask whatever question, <laughs> get over. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, what was the color of Napoleon's white horse? It's it's always something, you know, it requires explanation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so normally as we uh, as we sort of wrap up, we ask uh, our guests if there's anything, uh, wh- you know, where people can find them online and what they have that they'd, you know, like to promote. So so this is your opportunity to now, um, if, if there's something you want to uh, – Promotes or let people know what you're what you're sort of working on right at the moment. Then, um... well, I don't really have anything to promote. I'm doing some Hollywood work now, comic book related stuff, um, script doctor concept stuff, and uh, that that's nice. Pays well. It's fun, and um, I'm I'm going to do a, a book. Of, there's a, a friend of mine who's independent publisher, like his like his his stuff and like his attitude. And so he has a, uh, a book called Guardians, which I'm going to help him relaunch. I'm going to write a story for him. And um, uh, and I do occasional little indie things. Just I, They call me up. They say, would you write us a, a story? I said, yeah, well, what's your rate? 
I said, well, what can you afford? You know, <laughs> they'll say, well, you can go as high as $12 a page. And I'll say, why don't you give that to the artist now? Just do it for fun, you know? And, uh, and this, I've done a bunch like that. And, uh, uh, nothing, nothing really current out there to, uh, you know, I don't have any web page or anything like that. Um, I work for a, uh, with a company called Illustrated Media. I'm not an employee, but I'm, they use me for concept stuff and, you know, Hollywood stuff and things like that. And, uh, uh, Illustrated Media has a website, illustratedmedia.com. And I have, uh, had a blog, which I stopped doing years ago, um, almost 10 years ago, I guess. There's a lot of interesting stuff. It's still around and you can still go through it. A lot of interesting stuff there. It's fun stuff. And some of this, like the stories I'm telling, I write an article and then there's all these comments I get. Sometimes I would get tons of comments. If it was subject, it was real interesting. So that's it. It's called jimshooter.com and it's a blog. And even though I haven't worked on it for a long time, it's, there's, there's some pretty cool stuff that I'm starting. I'm, I'm about to start doing it again the when i did it i did it um, a couple times a week uh, now it'll probably be once a week but but i'll, I'll i'm going to try to get back into that is that all this fun stuff huh? jim if that blog doesn't feel active to you right now i'm pretty certain both mark and i were there this morning <laughs> well I, it still gets a lot of page views i mean uh, a friend of mine who knows about that stuff kind of tells me a lot of page views. I think at its at its peak, it was getting over three hundred thousand page views a month, and uh, you know, because it's fun stuff. You know, it's 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 not all about me. It's all about you know what happened and all the cool things that went on. So, Jim, there's this there's this wonderful book of interviews with you uh, that's edited by uh, Jason Sachs and Eric Hoffman and Dominic Grace, and um, there are many interviews with you online, both text and video. Uh, do you think about writing an autobiography? Well, funny you should say that. Uh, there's, um, uh, I'm sort of working on one now. It's not, uh, it's not a, well, I, I have offers from several publishers to do it. I just haven't had time. And uh, recently I've had some interest about, you know, um, maybe making it into a movie or something. But uh, I don't know. I'm not in a hurry to do it. I, I hope I'm around long enough to do it. But uh, I've got so much good stuff that I'm having fun with now. I just, I just don't have have time to, you know, to do that. We'll see. Yeah, and just my mind's my mind's racing about you. Sort of like the adaptation of your life, <laughs> like sort of mad. You know, like um, not quite the right era, but you know, Mad Men. Sort of I guess, yeah. The, the story, you know, the story uh, of what, what it was like at that t that time with all of this stuff going on around you. Yeah, great. Yeah, it was it was tough times. When I started off, uh, like I said, everything was late. We were missing shipping on books. That's how I was able to save money. I got us on time. It took me four months till we were shipping the correct number of books. My first month left. I'm sorry, Archie left me a mess, and and we we were supposed to publish forty five color comics in January of 78, only 26 made it out the door. You schedule time at the separator, you schedule time at the printer. If that book doesn't show up, you pay anyway. And so by getting us on time, I saved many hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
also it's, if you had if it was somewhat late then you had to have the the plates which were made in connecticut shipped to sparta illinois express you ship a book's worth of zinc plates that far in a hurry in those days wow cost a fortune and so uh so anyway saved money uh, uh doing that stuff and then uh, was you know able to end that part of the chaos but there was still lots of chaos left and uh, we uh, sorted through it got it got it done for a while things were good just the just the concept of zinc plates as a technology just sounds fascinating it must sounds expensive I'm going to step away from the camera and, and grab a plate. Okay. okay. Zinc plates uh, made um, from hand-separated film. Hand-separated. Mm. Okay. And so and you'd send them a color guide, and then these ladies would interpret the color guide. They'd, they'd make nine different cells plus the black cell. And 25% uh, yellow, 50% yellow, 100% yellow. 25% magenta, 50% each color. And they would look at your color guide and they'd guess. They'd say that brown is probably a 50% blue, and a 25% yellow, and, and so much red. And so they'd fill in that area on the appropriate cells with red paint. And that's what they use. They'd make the film. And then they'd, they'd combine the film for the three degrees of red and the three degrees of yellow and the three degrees of uh, uh, blue, cyan, uh, into one a uh, 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 piece of film from which they would make a zinc plate. And, uh, you know, I was talking about ancient technology. Yeah. <laughs> it boggles the mind. It really does. Yeah, I mean, and it was printed letterpress. That's like potato block printing, except it's on a, on a drum. So uh, here, is, here is the plate for uh, the cover to uh, the uh, second printing of uh, G.I. Joe issue two. This is the black plate, not yeah. the cyan or yellow or magenta plate. So yeah. what we're seeing here is the negative of four Joes in the Arctic. And then also the back cover uh, with the uh, a PSA with uh, Power Pack and Spider-Man. Yeah. So this is 80, 83, 84, 85. So this is metal. And this stuff is is plastic because this is flexographic. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, it was all metal plates when I started in the '60s, and it was all metal plates up until around the time I became editor in chief. And then uh, they wanted to save money, so we tried flexograph. That was ugly, and and then they came up with the plastic plates, which if the lines were too thin, they would, as the press got hot, they'd get wiggly. We used to call them boogie lines. Um, and finally they, they worked sorted that out made it better. I don't know. Uh, and these days everything is, uh, photo offset. So no, no more problems like that. But back then it was, the paper was bad. The printing was bad. <laughs> it was hand separated. And, and so, uh, uh, we, we started trying to change that while I was there. We started publishing on Baxter paper or other good stock. We even uh, upgraded the, the newsprint. I think we went from uh, basic newsprint to Mando Roto, I think. Um, and anyway, and yeah, the, the see, you were holding up cover plates there. Covers were printed on a smaller press. The, uh, the com comics were printed 16 up on a big press. And uh, it was uh, really interesting to watch. I was at World Color Press a number of times. 
And it was just, uh, I don't know, it's amazing it came out as well as it did. Are you describing the interior pages printed larger because they are then cut down? And the no, the interior, well, there's, there's more of them on each drum. There's okay. more of them on each drum, 16. Okay. So, uh, um, uh, you know, you have each color and, and the black. And uh, like I say, it's potato block printing, but it, it surprisingly came out pretty well sometimes. Yeah, it's astonishing that, that we got what we got from the process. Um, we've yeah. talked before about, uh, you know, the limitations of the process and, and what that what that meant meant for actually, you know, the inputs from the artists because they can only do so much that then gets reproduced on the page without without it being being yeah. lost. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very much. I mean, maybe your one's favorite aesthetic is the one that they're exposed to when they're five or eight or twelve, but. You know, I think there is some amazing color in modern computer colored comics. Excuse me. Colored yeah, so ours were 65 lines an inch. You could actually kind of see the dots if you look closely, the, the, the printing dots. I, I, for color printing, you know, when, when a nighttime scene is just like 50% blue and 75% blue for the guys and the backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, Maybe to an artist or the colorist, that's a that's a compromise and a disappointment. Uh, that's what I grew up with, so I sort of want. That's what I want when I look at comics. And as well, yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, that's what I grew up with. And and uh, 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 one thing I'll say though, back in the when I was a kid, I mean, maybe some of the comics were not as you know flashy and sophisticated as they got later. But they were all done by professionals. It was always a story. It always made sense. It was always told well. It, it you know, I mean, you could read a Uncle Scrooge comic book easily, even if you were very young. Uh, you know, so whether you like the Superman story or not, it was very clearly told and it was solidly constructed. You know, and the coloring in those days, people learned how to color. You You really only had about 56 colors to work with. Because anything that was too heavy of ink saturation would bleed through the paper. That's how bad the paper was. So uh, you potential 64 colors, you really could only use about 56. And in and, and those days, and it lingers to this day, by the way, in those days, there were just kind of, not, not rules, but guidelines. Heroes are red, blue, and yellow, with all, very few exceptions. Green Lantern. Uh, villains are uh, orange, green, and purple. And check it out. There's still a lot of that around. And, uh, uh, and the, those are dark and solid colors. Civilians were things like magenta, brown, Prussian blue, you know, all the off colors. So what happens is the characters are usually in the foreground. They're nice and dark and solid. And they bathe, make the backgrounds pastel. Instant depth. Okay. Well, that was that was simple. That that art got lost. I kept preaching to people: make it clear. You don't have to be formula like they used to be, because there is a way to do a lady in a pink dress or a guy in a, you know, in a, a, a tan suit or something. You know, sure, of course you can do it, but uh, you have to be good to know how to make that character stand out, and especially if you're standing next to the superhero who's bright red, blue, and yellow. You have to think about what that background is going to be. Too many people just sit down and start coloring. No, you have to analyze the panel first. 
figure out how am I going to make depth here? How am I going to make it clear? How am I going to make it dramatic? And, uh, you know, um, the best ones do that, like uh, Paul Audio, uh, Pat Olaf, uh, uh, J.J. Jackson, uh, Max Scheel, whose real name is Christy. Um, you know, they, they, they figured it out. Glynis Oliver. Anyway. So, uh, yeah, as we're, as we're sort of rolling into talking to, together for almost three hours, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, uh, let's finish there because we've got to finish somewhere. Um, you're yeah, welcome to join us uh, for, for the uh, sign out. So, uh, Tim. Jim, at the very end of this, I'm going to sing a jingle, which is uh, <laughs> our version of the 1988 G.I. Joe television toy commercial jingle. Yeah, that, wait. That's what that'll be. Um, uh, Mark, people can find me, uh, uh, video essays, uh, from my creative partners at, uh, Atomic Abe Productions. That's our YouTube channel, our website, atomicabe.com. My brick and mortar shop is in Somerville, Massachusetts, Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. And if, uh, you are new to Talking Joe, you can visit talkingjoe.co.uk. That is the website with all of the details and links to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all of that. A big thanks as well to all of our Patreon uh, subscribers who are supporting the show. And after a, a long and very interesting discussion, uh, I'll, I'll say I think that is us done. But remember that nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. Oh, <laughs> after Paul and There we go. If you want to sing too, there's the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> you, you still want to have viewers. So uh, join us next time. Later. Thanks a lot, guys. You guys are great. It's very nice. Thank Thanks you, a lot. Jim. I'm sorry I talked too much. Cool. <laughs> you made my day. <laughs>